Hi, listeners. This is the 80,000 Hours Podcast, where we have unusually in-depth conversations about the world's most pressing problems, what you can do to solve them, and whether my food truck that exclusively serves electricity-eating bacteria is going to be a big hit. I'm Rob Wiblin, Head of Research at 80,000 Hours. I first interviewed Dave Denkerberger about how to feed the world through a catastrophe that interferes with agriculture three years ago in episode 50 of the show. Listeners really loved that one because of the creativity and ambition that Dave showed when it came to solving real-world problems. He's the kind of person to do a cost-effectiveness estimate and take what it says really seriously. Dave's research and his nonprofit, which is called the Alliance to Feed the Earth in Disasters, have both come a long way since then. So Kieran and I thought it was time to check in and see what was new. It turns out the answer is uh, is a lot. Allfed has now had time to look into some of the food sources that were more just ideas floating around back in 2018. After this conversation, I, I came away thinking that feeding the world might hopefully be a lot easier than most people think, and that it's pretty crazy humanity isn't more on top of a lot of these different methods, given the value for money they might offer. We do a decent recap of Resilient Foods and All Fed at the start, so there's no need to listen to episode 50 first. In fact, if you're already familiar and want to skip the recap of what Resilient Foods are and why they might matter so much, then you can jump about 11 minutes into the episode. I'm happy to say that at the end of the conversation, we're also joined by David's colleague, Sahil Shah, who is an economist and co-founder of a company called Sustainable Seaweed. It turns out that seaweed is much cooler than I had realized, and Sahil is trying to find ways to expand the seaweed industry by building a for-profit that can effectively fund its own expansion. He also fills us in on the impact that COVID and a locust plague in Africa have had on famine and food prices in recent years. Dave and Allfed are fundraising at the moment in order to be able to pursue more of the lines of research that we cover in today's episode. So if at the end you think you would like to donate, which I think would be a very reasonable decision, then you can head to allfed.info slash donate or get in touch with David at david at allfed.info. They do accept crypto donations and can offer tax deductibility in a number of different countries. Oh, and uh, if you're inspired to help in a different way, Allfed is also hiring uh, and you can check out various different roles they have available at allfed.info. And just one final note, if you're listening to this episode on its day of release, then Giving Tuesday is uh, tomorrow, uh, November the 30th, and you can potentially get your donation to AllFed or one of dozens of other organizations matched at 8 a.m. U.S. Eastern Time. You can learn uh, more about all of that at eagivingtuesday.org. All right, without further ado, here's Dr. David Denkenberger. Today, I'm speaking with David Denkenberger. He did his undergraduate in engineering science at Penn State on a National Merit Scholarship before doing a master's at Princeton in mechanical and aerospace engineering and a PhD at the University of Colorado at Boulder in their building systems program on a National Science Foundation graduate research fellowship. He is now an assistant professor at the University of Alaska Fairbanks in mechanical engineering. In 2017, he co-founded and now directs the Alliance to Feed the Earth in Disasters, otherwise known as AllFed, and he donates half of his income to it. He has authored or co-authored 110 publications with over 2,800 citations between them. And among that, there is the book Feeding Everyone No Matter What, Managing Food Security After Global Catastrophe, which was the main topic of our conversation back in episode 50 from 2018. Uh, Thanks for returning to the show, Dave. Thanks, Rob. Great to be back. Later on, we're going to be joined for a while by your colleague, Sahil Shah, uh, to talk about his work on seaweed, disaster financing, and food security during COVID. But I find it's often a bit easier to properly dive into technical issues with just one person. So we're going to start and uh, and end the conversation with just the two of us. And for that, I hope to talk about how AllFed and our options for feeding humanity without the sun have progressed over the last three years. But first, as always, what are you working on at the moment and why do you think it's important? Well, now that Allfed has grown quite a bit, I've been transitioning from doing a lot of research to managing research, which I also really enjoy. 
And I'm particularly excited about integrating food sources together and looking at the economics, people being able to afford it, and then also eventually look at different cooperation scenarios, the politics of it. Nice. How big is Allfed these days compared to 2018 in terms of kind of the, the number of people involved and the budget? Well, we've definitely grown a lot. We're around 10 full-time equivalent paid, but we also have a large number of volunteers, a couple dozen. And yeah, it's been great. Excellent. Okay. So quite a lot of listeners, I think, might have heard our interview from back in 2018, but plenty won't have. And I suppose those who heard it back in 2018, uh, over the last three years, they might have forgotten a few of the little details. So you mind uh, just uh, reminding everyone kind of what are resilient foods and what's the case for working on them? Sure. Well, I guess when I started surveying global catastrophic risks and looking at what might be done about them, I was reading this paper called Fungi and Sustainability. And they observed that with the dinosaur killing asteroid, there were lots of dead trees and the sun was blocked, but mushrooms could grow. And they said, well, maybe when humans go extinct, the world will be ruled by mushrooms again. And I said, well, wait a minute, why don't we eat the mushrooms and not go extinct? (laughs) Makes sense. (laughs) And so started there, but then expanded out, well, what other resilient foods could actually work without the sun? And when people had looked at this before, they thought, well, just store up a lot of food ahead of time. And Mm. that would work, but it would probably cost tens of trillions of dollars. And it would take a long time to store up the food. Mm. And if you tried to do it fast, the food price would go up a lot, so more people would starve in the near term. So what I was interested in is, could we do something that doesn't cost too much ahead of time and then just spend the big money if and when the catastrophe comes? And so mushrooms are are great, but they're not the cheapest source of calories. Mm. And so in the book, Feeding Everyone No Matter What, looked at a a number of different possible foods, uh, including turning wood or fiber into sugar, methane or natural gas consuming microbes that have a lot of protein that we could eat. And then some animals, often called ruminants, like cows, sheep, and goats, could eat dead leaves and, and produce some food. The leaves that are killed by the catastrophe would still have some protein in them, so Mm. we might be able to grind them up and and get that protein out. Also, other possibilities included insects and rats. (laughs) (laughs) I suppose none none of these things sounds uh, incredibly appetizing, but they they probably all sound uh, a bunch better than than starvation, I think. Yeah, and some of them are more conventional, like Mm. uh, cow's milk and and sugar. (laughs) Yeah. Cool. So kind of the background is that there's a whole lot of ways that humanity could end up with a big food shortfall at some point in the next few centuries. I guess one that people will be very familiar with that we've talked about on the show quite a lot is the possibility of a, of a nuclear war and then a, then a nuclear winter that dramatically interferes with, with agriculture. I guess there's also volcanoes in the past have interfered with agriculture. Asteroids, should we be really unlucky, uh, could do that. And I guess another one that's a bit more salient than when we spoke in 2018 is the possibility of a, of a pandemic that has a sufficiently high fatality rate that people just don't want to go out and do any work because that exposes them to, to the pathogen and, and the risk of death. And so that, that interferes with agriculture or the transportation of food. And there's other possibilities like, you know, weeds or just incredibly bad weather or climate change getting worse dramatically or, or even gradually. All of these things could interfere with food, which is such an important thing for humanity. And so we kind of want to have a backup plan of how would we try to feed everyone no matter what, basically. That's right. And I guess, yeah, as you were saying, we could stockpile lots of food. The problem with that is that we would have to be doing that all the time, storing all of this food and paying to basically have enough food, say, to feed humanity for, for a whole year. And we'd have to do that regardless of whether there is a disaster, whether a disaster eventuates or not. So it would be much nicer if we could just spend all of this money, if and only if uh, there actually is a disaster that, that requires it. So it's a lot cheaper to kind of have this plan on the shelf that you could pull off and, and implement and scale up really quickly uh, should it come to that. 
That's right. And it could potentially be five or even 10 years, mm. uh, especially with the nuclear winter, the the dark particles could stay in the stratosphere a long time. So even though there are some countries that might have six months or a year, none are ready for these really long catastrophes. Yeah. Okay, so we're going to talk about the potential cost effectiveness of this project in terms of lives saved per dollar later on. But just briefly, do you want to kind of recap some of the analysis that you've done of that over the years? Sure. So there have been really two different timescales that we've looked at. One is the the near-term timescale, can we save lives cost-effectively in the present generation? But then also looking at the long-term future impact. That is, there are a number of mechanisms that a catastrophe like nuclear winter could affect the long-term. And so I, I certainly agree with a recent guest, Carl Schulman, that, that we can justify investment in, in these catastrophes just based on the, the present generation. Hmm. But then, as many of your listeners are, are concerned about the long term, I think there are a number of mechanisms that a catastrophe like nuclear winter could affect the long term. And so you just had Louisa on the podcast recently, and she went into great detail about probabilities of, of collapse and recovery. Hmm. And I think she makes a lot of good points. I think that direct extinction from these catastrophes is quite unlikely. I would say that it's it's possible that uh, there was this book called The Secret of Our Success, which looks at examples of people in a more developed circumstance trying to go back to hunter-gatherers, and it often didn't go well. Mm. So even though we'd have some stored food, of course, and some people would survive on that, if we couldn't figure out how to go back to being hunter-gatherers, if we mm. lost that civilization, that might not go well. And then, of course, we have a lot of current hunter-gatherers, mm. but they don't have a lot of stored food. Right, so yeah. it might not be clear that they would make it through. And mm. of course, there is fishing as well. But if you have many more people than food supply, there's a risk that we would actually eat species to extinction. Mm. And then, then you have no other alternative. <laughs> so I don't yeah. think it's very likely, but I think there is some mechanism. And then the other thing about if if we lost civilization, would we recover it? I am quite optimistic that we're likely to recover. But even if it's a 1% chance we don't recover, I still think that there's a, a, a case from the long-term perspective to invest in this. You know, I think the nuclear winter is likely enough and the amount of money we're talking about is is relatively small. And so this cost-effectiveness analysis was compared to artificial general intelligence safety. Mm. And there's tons of uncertainty, but I think what we can say is that they're at least in the ballpark. And mm. so we should be investing in both of them. Yeah. Let's maybe push into what's happened in the last three years. So I think last time around, we spoke about, uh, let's see, so, so mushrooms, seaweed, um, algae, processed plant matter, I guess seafood, which is not interrupted as much as agriculture. We briefly talked about direct synthesis of food from fossil fuels, potatoes, which grow pretty well in the cold. Briefly, we looked about growing bacteria from methane. And there was also the possibility, which I think we hadn't really looked into back in 2018, of fermenting plant matter using yeast or bacteria or fungus. So this would be plant matter that would still be around and potentially rotting because of the, because of the absence of the sun. Yeah, do you, do you want to give us an update on one of those options that has progressed a little bit uh, since we last spoke? Sure. So one of the things we've done is look at the current costs of these resilient food production, because many of them are already in production. And that gives us some idea of how cost effective they might be, though, of course, the actual catastrophe could change things. And in the catastrophe, it might not be so much that it is dollars that we're talking about, but it's, you know, how many resources go into it. And I think that's correlated now with the current price. And so that allows us to prioritize. And one of the technologies that came out as promising is this turning fiber or, or wood or cellulose into sugar. And so we looked at constructing factories to produce this sugar very quickly. 
But what looks to be more promising is taking an existing factory that has a lot of the components we need and Mm. repurposing that to produce sugar. Mm. And one of the most promising we found was a paper factory because it already takes wood and it it takes a lot of energy to grind it up and do that pre-processing step. And then it's not that much more work to break the cellulose into edible sugars. Okay, so basically, should there be a nuclear winter or terrible volcano or something like that, we'd still have a whole lot of wood and other plant matter that is just out there in nature. And there's a lot of energy embedded in that. But the problem is humans cannot eat wood. And so we need to find some way to make it digestible. And you're saying it's possible to turn it into the kind of sugar that we would that we would normally eat, like it's possible to break it down into into glucose, and then we can eat that. That's right. And there are actually a couple startup companies that are trying to turn fiber into edible sugar. Huh. Now, that's that's great because they're doing some of this research, but they're just not thinking, how would we do it fast in a catastrophe? And so that's the type of research that we're looking at. Huh. So have people done this before? Have, have people turned wood into, into sugar ever? Or is this... In, in fact, the, uh, the second generation or cellulosic biofuels do just that. Huh. But then they take the sugar and ferment it into ethanol mm. to substitute for gasoline or petrol. And in that case, you're not worried about food standards, mm. but you are making actual edible sugar. Interesting. Okay. So yeah, what's, what's the process for taking a bunch of wood and then, and then turning it into something, into something that, that people can eat? So basically a lot of, of grinding in the beginning, uh, break it up into pieces, and then you apply something that... So the we call it lignocellulosic material. And that comes from the cellulose, which is basically lots of sugar molecules stuck together. There's also hemicellulose, which is similar. And then there's lignin, which you can't really do anything with the lignin. So you need to separate those components. And then you apply an enzyme to break the cellulose into sugar and the hemicellulose into other sugars. Okay. Is this with a bacteria or do you use like chemicals to break it down? It's typically done where you'll purify an enzyme that is produced by an organism like a fungus or bacteria, but then it's done without that organism in a bioreactor. Okay. So I guess fungus eats logs. Uh, and I guess it's probably bacteria uh, that, that eat logs as well. And I suppose they, they also probably can't directly absorb cellulose or anything like that. So they themselves have to break it down into sugar somehow, right? And if I remember from my biology classes, kind of fungus extrudes some sort of acids or other compounds that break down, break down wood into something that then the fungus can, can absorb and, and use to get energy. And kind of are we, are we to some degree like mimicking that process to make something that humans can also eat? Exactly. And so we could, as we mentioned, mushrooms are one way of turning wood into food, but yeah. it turns out they're pretty inefficient. Hmm. And so if we can just grab the enzymes from them, and then turn all that cellulose into sugar, or nearly all, That's we get a lot more food out of it yeah. than with the natural process. That makes a ton of sense. How expensive would this be? I mean, is this a way that we could plausibly make food at an affordable price today? Yeah, amazingly inexpensive. Even though we'd be doing this repurposing with 24-7 labor, hmm. we would have to pay more for that. And even considering the fact that we wouldn't run these factories as long, we'd probably only be running them for 10 years during the catastrophe, that increases the cost, but not that much. And so we got around, if you were to feed one person all of their calories, which obviously they wouldn't eat all their calories, but it's a way of visualizing it. It's only about a dollar a day from cellulosic sugar. Yeah, why is it so cheap? Is it just that wood has a whole lot of calories in it and there'll be lots of wood around and it's actually, it's just from an industrial perspective, not that difficult to process it into into sugar? Yes. So you're not paying for the energy because it is a waste product. Mm. Whereas some of these other sources, you're, you're paying for the energy. And then it's also particularly cheap because we have these factories that have most of the components already. 
Right. Okay. So it was paper factories. I guess obviously they have to be processing wood. Are there other factories that have a similar capacity to kind of grind things up and then, you know, put them in a vat with some enzymes? Uh, another one is breweries. Ah, yeah. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. I suppose, are there going to be issues with kind of bacteria invading the, the vats here? Or maybe does the, are the enzymes sufficiently uh, caustic that you wouldn't have a problem with invading pathogens? As far as I know, it's not a significant problem. Yeah, yeah. So we also looked at how many people might be fed from this source. Mm. And so we looked at a kind of extreme scenario. What if you were to repurpose all the paper factories? Obviously, we wouldn't do all of them, but it gives you some idea. And then we looked at, well, how much are we currently spending to make similar things, factories that are related to chemical and mechanical processes? And that was around $500 billion a year. So we said, well, what if we repurpose this construction budget Mm. to repurposing paper factories? And we found that by the end of the first year, we could provide about calories for approximately 30% of the population. Okay. So this is if we re-diverted a lot of our industrial capacity into making factories that can produce this glucose from wood, then within a year, we could feed about a third of the world uh, using using this method. That's right. Okay. And incredibly cheaply, it sounds like as well. It's a dollar a day per person. is uh, That's like affordable even for people who are like <laughs> quite, quite poor. Exactly. And that's, and that's our target here because we're trying to feed everyone no matter what. Yeah. We want to look at those resilient foods that are inexpensive. Okay. So this method sounds incredibly good. It's cheap. It's pretty scalable. We can like repurpose a lot of equipment that's already around. It doesn't sound like it's technically that that complicated. Are there any downsides that we should be aware of or should we be like really, really bullish about this method? Well, the, the major downside is that if we were to repurpose many of the paper factories, the cost of paper would go up. Yeah. And so then this analysis is not taking into account the opportunity cost of paper production. Hmm. Now, what I'll talk about later is what we call the integrated model, where we're actually looking at the interactions between the resilient foods. And that would actually take into account that opportunity cost. Yeah. I mean, I feel like in a nuclear winter, we don't want paper so much. Or I feel like I would take the food over, over the paper. Like, can't we just scribble stuff on blackboards or something? <laughs> and, and maybe recycle paper. So right. yeah, hopefully we could dramatically reduce the production of paper. Yeah. So we have all of this industrial stuff for grinding up wood for various different reasons. But what about making all of these enzymes? Is that a more technically challenging thing if we're producing the enzymes through some you know, biological process? Well, that's all included in the cost. And one nice thing about using bacteria or fungi is they can be scaled up quickly. So mm. it's, it's really limited by the installing the equipment. Yeah. I guess presumably at the end of this process, you would you'd have some stage at which you pull out the sugars and then separate out the enzymes uh, that you were using. I guess that would just be part of the food processing. So potentially the enzymes could be reused for quite a substantial period of time before you'd have to replace them. Right. Yeah. And I guess I would also comment that in the the book, we did this order of magnitude technical scaling capability of these Mm. different resilient foods. And my original estimate was actually feeding everyone by the end of the first year. Okay. Uh, So we're, we're lower than that. But I would point out that this is just the factory construction budget that's quite relevant hmm. to this process. It's possible that we could take people who are building roads or buildings and hmm. train them how to build factories. Yeah. But that would be more involved, and we, we haven't worked out the costs in that case. How many people could we feed with kind of the current paper producing capacity and other like you know, infrastructure that's already just there? 
That's the thirty percent. That's the thirty percent. Oh right. So I thought that we were. I thought that that was if you actually built new stuff. Uh, that, that's on the, only repurposing. That's that's factors. just repurposing. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And what happens if we're like, well, let's let's make some new let's make some new factory stuff. Well, then then <laughs> then we can feed more. Okay. But, right, yeah. but we're, if we're already getting thirty percent of our calories from sugar, we might not yeah. need any more sugar. Okay. So right, then, what I would do is the next thing is I would build new factories that can turn the methane into single cell protein. And and for there, we did not find a good repurposing opportunity because it was pretty specialized equipment. And so then we would be building the factories from scratch. So again, we're looking at fast construction. It's going to cost more. Mm. We're only going to use them a certain amount of time, but still it's a pretty low cost way of producing calories and they're 50 to 80% protein. Right. So so this is where you have kind of a suspended liquid and you're growing these bacteria that are able to directly eat methane. I guess we've gotten them from kind of vents or other locations where methane is abundant and they've learned to basically just eat methane out of their environment. Right. And so you're you bubble up methane, I guess, and we get methane we get methane the same way we get natural gas, is that right? Uh, methane is the primary component of natural gas. Okay. Though it is possible that we could use a biogas instead of a fossil fuel. Okay. So, so we've got, so we got methane that we're previously using to heat homes. We bubble it through a liquid that has this bacteria growing in it, and the bacteria just eat the methane and turn it into food. And I guess, importantly, protein, which otherwise might be a bit challenging to get. That's right. So you're not getting any protein from that sugar. Yeah. And by the end of the first year, we've estimated that, again, with that repurposable budget of construction, that we could provide about 20% of global protein requirements. Okay. And the repurposing there, you're saying we don't have tons of equipment that could be used for this lying about. So we would actually have to start building new vats that you can grow these bacteria in. Yes. Yeah. Uh, sorry, that might be confusing. But <laughs> re- repurposing the, 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 the infrastructure, or the, 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 the labor and the, the materials. Base. Yes. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Are there any challenges with that one that we should be aware of or that your like, un- uncertainties you have about it? Well, this one, we came out at about $2 a day for one person's calories. And of course, then there's the opportunity cost of that natural gas. So in the yeah. economic model, we'd have to look at how the price changes. Hmm. So this is more current prices. My logic is that there's definitely going to be some type of a global recession or depression, even hmm. if just because we're going to spend more money on food and less money on toys. And so we're going to spend less energy on some things. Hmm. And so the equilibrium price of energy might not be that much higher, yeah. but we need to work that out. Okay. So in order to estimate the cost here, you've kind of taken current prices for, for, for these inputs. And I guess that could be too low because that suddenly if we're using lots of gas to produce food, that would push it up. On the other hand, if tons of factories are destroyed in this disaster or you know, we're having a terrible pandemic and people aren't going and making, you know, semiconductor chips and so on, then that could potentially push down the price for, for lots of these inputs. So it's a bit, it's a bit hard to forecast how scarce would, would gas be. And I guess how scarce would, you know, uh, steel be for, for making these vats. Right. And of course, the world would be colder. So you'd need more natural mm. gas for heating. Yeah. But we burn a lot of natural gas to air condition our homes as well <laughs> through electricity. Right. Yeah. 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 Okay. So we potentially need to redivert it from some places to others. Okay. Are there any others uh, that have come along? I guess we're up to 50% now. You've got 30% sugar, 20% protein. What's what's the other half? And to be clear, the, the 20% of our protein requirements is only about 2% of our calories. Ah, okay. So you, so it's not 20% of our calorie requirements. It's just 20% of the protein that we need. Right. Got it. Okay. Okay. Yeah. What, what else do you think should go in this portfolio? Well, one fairly straightforward is uh, we feed a lot of food to animals. Mm. And yet many animals, as I pointed out, can eat stuff that's not edible to humans. Mm. So in a catastrophe, we would want to redirect that human edible food away from animals as fast as possible. And so we're looking at scaling up the 
having animals eat the residues from agriculture. Ah, so this is like the the leaves on wheat plants or something like that. that That's that, right. that people can't eat. How much energy is in all of the all of the like agricultural residues? It's quite big, and a lot of people are looking at it as a source of fuel. And that's mm. where the cellulosic biofuels are looking at. Ah, right, right. It seems like kind of whenever we've been converting something into biofuels, we can potentially convert it into human human fuel. That's like going to be a common theme. It's similar, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I guess, so to some extent, we're trying to plan for a world where there isn't agriculture or it's, like it's going to be hard to grow the wheat to get the leaves and so on. But I guess there's tons of that material just lying about already on farms that we could then potentially feed to cows or pigs or so on. And I guess there's also just like trees out there. So you can get lots of leaf matter and try to feed them to animals that would, that would then eat. That's right. Yeah. But interestingly, even in a pretty severe nuclear winter, and the the technical terminology here refers to how much soot or black carbon gets injected into the stratosphere, Mm -hmm. 150 teragrams or 150 million tons is a bad nuclear winter, eight degrees Celsius loss within a year. Mm -hmm. But still, you have about 40% as much light coming through. So we might be able to actually grow something photosynthetically. Yeah. And so just... Moving on from the the ruminants, even in places where you have a really short growing season, you might not be able to grow crops. Mm. You might be able to grow grass. So Mm. there could be some grazing continuing. Interesting. Is that 40% is getting through in the Northern Hemisphere or 40% globally? That's globally. Globally. Okay. So it'd be somewhat worse potentially in Europe, say, but in the tropics and Southern Hemisphere, not so bad? Well, that's only really in the beginning. Mm, Uh, It does spread globally within a few months. Okay. Interesting. So so the soot Initially, it's circulating in the Northern Hemisphere, but gradually it leaks down and, and, is, and is a bit everywhere. Right. Interesting. Why don't we feed these kind of byproducts that presumably aren't getting, like aren't earning much revenue right now to, to cows and pigs and chickens? Like, it's a bit odd that we're not feeding them this thing that is kind of useless rather than feeding them food that humans could potentially eat. It's a good question. And I think part of it is that, at least in the U.S., there's a subsidy for corn or maize. Mm. So that makes it more economical for the ranchers to say, typically, you do grazing early life of the the Mm. cattle and then fatten them up on maize later. And so if if they didn't have that subsidy, they probably wouldn't be doing as much feeding them human edible food. Yeah. And I think long term, as we need to get more sustainable, we need to get more food out of the same land, I think we will move more towards utilizing these agricultural residues. Yeah, interesting. Okay, so there's possible subsidies. I suppose also just calories from corn is so cheap now that if there's practical downsides, you know, maybe health-related downsides or just practical issues getting the agricultural residues, right. if there's any kind of downsides, maybe the feed is so inexpensive anyway that, that you'll just go with the thing that's most straightforward and most familiar. Right. The the cattle would not mature as fast. Mm-hmm. And so time is money here. Right, right, right. Makes sense. Okay, yeah. What, what else can you give us an update on? Well, given that we might be able to you know, actually have some sunlight here, one thing that we didn't get to investigate in the book, but now have since, is seaweed production. Hmm. And we found that it's very promising. There are several species of seaweed that even with the lower light levels in nuclear winter and lower temperatures can still grow 10% per day. <laughs> even up to like adulthood? Or like, oh, they just keep growing at 10% they, a day? They just keep growing. So basically you have these long lines that are floated by these buoys yeah. and you start with little pieces of seaweed and yeah. they grow and then you just chop off the growth and then they just keep growing. Okay. Why does seaweed grow so fast? It, it is amazing and it's only certain species. And okay. right now they're often limited by nutrients. Mm. And so 
at least in the near term, we would still have those those nutrients. And mm-hmm. then I talked last time about the potential overturning of the ocean, that mm-hmm. if you cool the upper layers of the ocean, they sink and bring up nutrients. Mm-hmm. So it turns out that is not as large as I thought it was going to be. So, okay. so the actual production from fish is not going to go up as much as I thought. But with seaweed, it's just much more efficient in growing it directly than having algae grow and then feeding it to fish. Right, right, right. You, you, you skip a trophic level or you don't, yeah, you don't need an extra trophic level. So, right. so the point there is that during a nuclear winter, say, if agriculture is interfered with, the atmosphere is colder, that cools the upper layer of the sea, and then that tends to sink down, which then creates this kind of upwelling of nutrients that are on the, on the ocean bed. And then that basically provides fertilizer to seaweed to grow faster than it would normally. And so potentially you can get seaweed growing even faster than it was before. Yeah, potentially. I th- I think what they've found is that the what they call the net primary productivity, that is how much biomass is produced per year, will still fall in a nuclear mm. winter, but it won't fall as much as on land right. because of that nutrient enrichment. I guess there's also one benefit that anything under the ocean has is that the temperature falls much less under the sea because the water kind of buffers the temperature change. And so while you might get a lot of plants on the surface dying from frost and things like that because of the winter conditions under the ocean, like the temperature might only drop a couple of degrees. That's right. Yeah. What kind of inputs do we need in order to grow much more seaweed? I guess so you've got to be around a coast. And then you were saying to grow seaweed, you kind of attach it to ropes, to rope. like, like kind of rope grown mussels or something like that. Yes. So it turns out we produce a lot of synthetic fiber for other reasons, like clothing. The main constraint here is twisting those fibers into ropes that Mm. we're going to attach the seaweed to. And we found that right now we don't produce that much rope. We would actually have to increase our rope twisting capability by (laughs) 300 times. Okay. (laughs) Which sounds kind of crazy, but it's actually a really simple process. And people have done it in their garage with a drill, you know, Mm. basically twisting these fibers. But these pieces of equipment are only $10,000 and you can make a lot of rope. Hmm. So it turns out it takes a very small percent of our manufacturing budget to make a lot of rope twisters. So, I mean, most seaweed is growing out of the ocean bed on rocks and things like that, right? It attaches to to something on the bottom and then it kind of grows upwards. But that's no good for us? Or I, I guess... I guess all of that seaweed that can attach to rocks on the bottom of a coast, it's, that's already growing. So we need to like have some artificial environment that's very conducive to, to seaweed growing. And I suppose like the closer it is to the surface, the more light it's getting. So it might grow faster if we are attaching it to, to ropes near, near the top. That's right. And so seaweed, why it can handle low light levels is it often does grow 10 meters down in the ocean. Mm. But yeah, we want to have it near the surface in, in nuclear winter. Yeah. Okay. So... The limiting factor is ropes that you'll be hanging these ropes out of boats and things like that. Yeah. So you'd be taking the rope and you've been putting small pieces of seaweed, attaching it to it. And then you string the rope out in the ocean and it's Mm. held upward by buoys Mm. and then also anchored at the end. Yeah. What do we generally make these ropes out of? Is it kind of cotton? So would like repurpose stuff that was going into clothes or? It's actually typically synthetic materials because they're more durable. I see. That makes sense. Okay. And the limiting factor is being able to spin ropes, or you would say twisting ropes, basically. Yes. Because if you don't twist ropes a lot, then they break or things won't attach to them. So basically, you're, you want to transform this small diameter fiber mm. into something usable. Yeah. And they, they do that by twisting or, or weaving the fibers together. Yeah. Okay. But that's a, that's a pretty straightforward process. What fraction of food do you think we might be able to get from, from seaweed ultimately? Well, not surprisingly, with that 10% growth per day, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, assuming we can scale up that rope twisting, we could actually get up to 
160% of human calories okay. in less than a year. Okay. Uh, Surely there's some bottleneck here that would limit us. So, okay, so we've got the rope, we've got, well, we've got the like material, and then we've got the spinning. Don't we need like a ton of boats or buoys in order to hang these things off of? You do need boats, but we do have quite a few personal boats. Yeah. And as long as you're not very far from the shore, they could even be human powered rowboats. Right. Um, if it's farther away, of course, you need to have some source of power. Yeah. So it turns out we could do this with less than 1% of the ocean area. So we don't actually have to go very far away from shore. Yeah. Okay. Is there, is there some downside to the seaweed stuff? Okay, maybe, maybe we'll come back to the seaweed once, once Sahel as well as he can talk about, because I guess he's trying to make a business out of this, right? Yeah. Well, I will say that obviously people can't eat all seaweed. Hmm. And, and even at the level of relatively small number of calories, there's concern about getting too much iodine. Hmm. If you look at the upper limit of iodine. However, there was an interesting natural experiment, which was some Peace Corps workers thought they were taking a supplement, but they were actually taking iodine tablets that were used to purify water. And say that they were, for over a year, ingesting 50 times the upper limit of iodine. Per day. Per day. And they only had minor conditions and they were reversible. So I think this shows that, that we can push it farther. Uh, than normally recommended. And that could get you up to perhaps a quarter of your calories. Mm. Now, of course, there's the issue of whether you want to eat that much seaweed. Yeah. Um, but then again, if the alternative is starvation. <laughs> Maybe you would, yeah. So I think the only time I've eaten seaweed is is kind of like a salty seaweed crushed up. They're like kind of chips, basically. I think they're like a Japanese or Korean snack or something like that. Is that how we would eat the seaweed? Presumably we would eat it in some slightly less palatable, <laughs> less, 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 less fancy way if this is how we were getting most of our food. Uh, we might be do- able to do something similar. I'll talk later about how we might be able to produce other fats that we could fry it in. Yeah. But the other example is just uh, sushi seaweed. Oh, right. Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, if I was going to have a meal of just seaweed, do you have any idea like what, I guess, I guess you could fry up seaweed and then it's kind of like eating, you know, a fried vegetable? I think so. Yeah, interesting. Okay. I guess I have this idea that seaweed is really chewy, but but I guess once you like, I don't know, <laughs> mash it up a bunch, then it's not so bad. Yeah, you might even be able to turn it into something like flour. Mm, okay, amazing. Okay, yeah. Is there anything more to, more to say on the seaweed before we move on? Well, I guess I'd point out both with seaweed and these uh, fermentation or single cell protein options. I'm, I'm excited that the Good Food Institute is mm. now uh, working more on that as well. Okay, so, so the Good Food Institute, they're, they're more focused on animal, animal well-being or trainer and factory farming and come up with replacement foods for, for meat and eggs and so on. Yeah, how would they use these to replace meat? Well, in the case of the methane single cell protein, it's very high protein. So yeah. that could be used as a meat substitute. Many seaweed species are not very high in protein, but some are. So mm-hmm. again, they could use that as a meat substitute. Okay, so they're alternative protein sources potentially. Do, do they have any benefit over the, I guess, classic ones now are kind of soy protein, I guess, pea protein. I think there's there's some others. Do you know if they, I guess, maybe this is outside of your, your bailiwick, but yeah, do you have any idea of what the, what the benefits might be of this kind of bacterial protein or seaweed protein? Well, I think there's potentially sustainability benefits. Okay, uh, yeah. These processes would not use a significant amount of fresh water, hmm. and they're not taking away from agricultural land. And in the case of the methane right now, if it's already being flared mm. because it's in a remote location and it's not economical to deliver to a market, yeah. then maybe we could build a factory there. Yeah. God, I love the idea of taking a like gas field and turning it into a source of food. It's like, I, I just saw June on the weekend. And it's like, it feels very, it feels very sci-fi that uh, yeah, you're taking, taking fossil fuels and, and growing something that people can eat. I guess speculatively, I think 
in the past, people were really focused on making meat substitutes out of soy protein or some of the others. And then people really caught on to the fact that pea protein has some uses for making a texture that is a lot more like, like meat. So maybe these other, other sources of protein might turn out to have their, have their kind of culinary uses to, to replace different, different sorts of foods that people are familiar with. Um, how about the outdoor growing of plants? Like you were saying, the sun wouldn't be completely gone in most of these scenarios. So just as we can grow seaweed, we can probably grow some crops that are more familiar with colder temperatures or lower light. That's right. So things like potatoes, mm-hmm. uh, canola, sugar beets, even wheat and barley. Okay. Just a few days ago, I was looking into the, coincidentally, I was looking into the yield that you get different crops per acre. And I think I was astonished by how productive potatoes are. The amount of calories they produce per acre in, in normal conditions is extremely high, which I guess is how it ended up being one of the kind of staple foods that supported civilization, you know, a highly populous big city civilizations in the Americas. Yeah, what, what does that say about these, about these crops that can kind of tolerate low temperatures and, and uh, lower light? Well, one of the concerns is that there could be high ultraviolet radiation. Mm. And the climate models indicated for a regional nuclear war, such as India-Pakistan, that might produce around a 1.5 degree Celsius temperature drop, that the ozone layer would be largely destroyed and have higher ultraviolet radiation. Sorry, uh, explain that a bit more slowly. Yeah, why would the ozone layer go away? So the the soot or the smoke going up into the stratosphere, yeah. the sun is absorbed up in the stratosphere and that okay. actually warms the stratosphere. Okay. And that makes the destruction of ozone faster. Ah, it's like churning different layers of it uh, such that the ozone doesn't get formed or is getting getting degraded somehow. Uh, getting degraded, degraded, I believe. Okay. Wow, interesting. Okay, so would have issues with UVA, UVB, UVC even potentially that causes cancer or is like damaging to plants? Potentially. And so that's a concern for for that scenario. But so far, the climate modeling of the real extreme nuclear winter, it just blocks so much sunlight Mm. that it doesn't look like there's going to be a lot of ultraviolet radiation. Uh, Okay, so there's a higher fraction of what's getting through is UV. But you've also got this dampening of sunlight just in general. So it seems like on net, like plants are going to be able to, to cope with it all right. Right. Okay, yeah. How productive might these crops be? Would we be, you know, growing, I guess, normally you grow potatoes somewhat out you know, either a bit to the north or a bit to the south of the tropics. They're not a tropical crop, I don't think. But in this situation, would you move them somewhat closer to, would you move them closer to to the equator where there'd be higher temperatures and more light? That's right. And actually many areas in the tropics would even have a growing season year round. Right. So is there much to say in choosing between the different ones that you mentioned? I guess potatoes have stuck in my head, but there's also, you're saying wheat, barley, oats, all of these things potentially can can deal with these conditions. Right. And it's great to have a variety. Potatoes aren't the highest protein, whereas wheat is higher. Canola is really important to produce the fats. Yeah. But these are the ones we've chosen that we think would work well and are lower cost. Now, there are many other cool tolerant species that are higher cost that we would grow as well, like carrots and yeah. other vegetables. But we're focusing on the lower cost ones. Okay, makes sense. So, so I'm guessing if we're moving them to like more tropical regions where you weren't typically growing these crops before, is it going to be very hard for people to learn how to completely switch what they're growing? I'm imagining, you know, if we're going to start growing potatoes in Thailand, farmers there might not have a lot of familiarity with these with these crops. They might have to kind of redesign, rejig how they're doing things. That's right. So there, there definitely would need to be international cooperation here, both to move the seeds to the tropics, but then also the uh, the training, the the knowledge. Yeah. So it's a big advantage to get the right crops in the tropics. But the other thing is that if we're not growing food outside the tropics or not nearly as much, we can use the inputs we have and focus them on the tropics, Mm -hmm. things like fertilizers, pesticides, tractors. And so that's the other reason I think we can do a lot better than just 
crops where they're currently planted with the current inputs. Hmm. So what kind of fraction of global calories do you think we're about to get through the outdoor growing that we can still do? And, and I guess greenhouses as well, maybe? Yeah, I mean, in particular, the outdoor growing, it's very preliminary at this point. We're looking at using the the climate model outputs from nuclear winter and, and crop growth models. But we think in the ballpark of half of human need. Hmm. But that doesn't mean that we produce half as much food as we do now, because right now we produce two or even three times as much food as we need. Uh. So it's still it's still a big reduction in overall output. Okay, and that extra stuff is going to buy fuels and, and feeding animals and so right. on. So, okay, but uh, we'll be able to produce like half of the theoretical number of calories that humans need to not be starving. Right. And this is actually an example of where I was more pessimistic in the book. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think in some cases, more pessimistic, some mm. cases more optimistic, but overall it's looking like a similar picture. Okay, interesting. Yeah, what was the update that made this seem more valuable than, than you thought a few years ago? Well, I, I was concerned about the relocation of crops, whether they would be highly dependent on particular soil types. Mm. That doesn't seem to be as much of a case. I was concerned about UV initially, mm. and I was also concerned about this the temperature swing mm. and freezing. But it turns out that it's not as much of a problem. How confident can we be about that kind of climatic modeling? I guess we've got issues with, yeah, like, would we get frost issues? How much would the temperature change? Would the UV be like this? Is this all like highly uncertain or do we have a reasonable idea? I think the the regional results of climate models are getting more reliable, but definitely uncertainty. Yeah. So so we wouldn't want to completely bank on this, but the central case seems like agriculture in, in some places is still gonna be still gonna be pretty viable if we if we choose the right crops. What about you were talking about potentially making greenhouses, which seems like a great idea because I think we can grow all kinds of stuff in quite northern latitudes using greenhouses now. It seems like it's kind of going to be a similar situation in the in, in a nuclear winter situation. That's right. And so at first, I didn't think we would be able to cover much area. Hmm. But it turns out that we make a lot of polymer, but we don't extrude a lot of polymer sheet. Huh. And so the bottleneck there is to make a lot of these extruders that make the clear polymer sheet. Okay. So greenhouses aren't made out of glass now. They're mostly made out of this kind of plastic polymer. Yeah, typically. So what we're looking at is is a very low-tech greenhouse mm. that we can scale fast. So mm. we're just looking at a thin polymer sheet. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And, and you thought that we wouldn't be able to produce as much of it, but uh, it seems like maybe we could. Well, it turns out the, the actual extruders are not that expensive. So again, if we can use some of our manufacturing construction budget, we can make a lot of these extruders yeah. and cover a lot of area. Amazing. Are there other, I suppose you need steel bars and like other things in order to, to produce these quickly? Or just wood framing oh, and, right. and, okay. and nails. And so we looked at current wood production and, and nails and, mm. and the main constraint was the, the was plastic the cover. Okay, so it's kind of you can do a bit of an IKEA job with this or something where you, if, if you have a bunch of these clearish plastic sheets and then you get a bunch of wood, you can like nail them together and kind of make a makeshift greenhouse that's good enough for growing stuff. That's right. So we're not talking about any heating or air conditioning, yeah. but still you can raise the temperature significantly such that these more tropical crops might be able to grow. So corn, rice, yeah. soybeans. So is this five or 10 degrees higher than the surrounding area? Around that. And I guess more stable. It would buffer the, the day and night temperature shift. Yeah. Any any speculation on what fraction of uh, our calories we'd be able to get using this method? So we're getting around a fifth of our calories by the end of the year. Okay. And does this compete with other, I suppose we've got several different ways in which we're trying to redirect potential, you know, the talent and the industrial base. Uh, we've got this is the use for plastic. We've got, you know, rope spinning. Uh, we're potentially redirecting people to working in these paper mills, making food. Do any of these kind of compete with one another in terms of the inputs that they need? 
The ones that really compete would be the the sugar and the methane uh, mm. production because that requires a lot of capital. I see. Uh, so we could we could definitely cover the greenhouses and the the rope twisting for seaweed. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, we like currently produce a ton of plastic for all kinds of uses, right? And so is this we're basically going to repurpose the inputs that we were using for other plastic goods into making these kinds of sheets? And it turns out that the amount of sheets you need in terms of just the total global plastic output isn't so high. That's right. So, so again, in the eventual economic model, we'll need to take into account that opportunity cost. But at this point, we estimate that it might add around a dollar a day for a person because of the cost of the greenhouse. So if we look at the cost of rice, we might add another dollar a day. So you might be up to $2 a day or something yeah. like that. Okay. So we've talked about quite a few different options here, and some of them seem remarkably promising. You're talking about doing kind of economic modeling of envisaging the economy as a whole re-diverted towards doing all of these things at once. I guess I would have had the intuition that it's extremely hard to model that kind of thing, or at least the tools that economists have for envisaging, you know, how policy would change this or that might not transfer super well to envisaging such a different world. How much faith should, should we have in this modeling and, and how do you even go about it? It is definitely a concern. And at this point, we've really only gotten to a relatively simple model where we can say, well, we only have one industrial construction budget. Mm. And so right now we're actually just putting in the sugar and not the methane single cell protein because they do compete. Yeah. So in what we call the integrated model, we're looking at the lowest cost, most promising resilient foods. But we also will have, fortunately, some stored food that we can use initially. Mm. And there would be some amount of animals that we would slaughter soon and preserve, but then we don't have to eat them right away. So we can look at when that's optimal to, to meet calories, protein, and fat. Yeah. Okay. So we've got this initial period where we have some stored food. We have food that's out in the fields. Yeah. What stuff could we do really urgently in order to try to feed people, you know, in month three when we're kind of running out of the stored food, but maybe some of these other ideas haven't really come online properly yet? Well, one of them is that we do expect some amount of harvest of food that has already been planted mm. because the climate change does take about a year to take effect. Oh, interesting. So in a nuclear winter scenario, it's not like suddenly from one day to the next, it's incredibly cold. It's like a more, more gradual shift every year. Right. It does happen pretty fast in the center of continents, but then the ocean cools more mm. slowly. And I guess maybe you have an issue where, as you were saying, initially the soot is more concentrated in the areas where the nuclear war was. And, and so other areas, it takes a while for the temperature to, to drop. Right. Interesting. Okay. So we potentially have like a reasonable amount of lag time during which we can react, at least if you're near coasts, I suppose, or you're near places where food is already stored, rather. I guess not the UK here. <laughs> we tend to, do you know off the top of your head how much food storage we have in the UK? I think it's shockingly little. I think it's very little intentional storage, yeah. but I think there would be a significant amount of on-farm storage just because okay. you're growing wheat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. So at this point, we have this, this graph of a, a summary, and mm. we haven't fully incorporated... The fact that if we do a good job and produce a lot of resilient foods, that means the price of food is not that high. Hmm. And so some amount of food probably still would go to animals. Hmm. But then that means we need to produce even more food. <laughs> and so still, still working that out. We do think that biofuels should be turned off because yeah. the price of food is going to go up more than the price of energy, we're pretty sure. But one of the policy suggestions, of course, is to have governments agree ahead of time to yeah. turn off that biofuel production. I guess, I mean, biofuels, uh, I can put up some links to articles about this. It seems like biofuels can kind of make sense if you're doing sugarcane, 
potentially they're they're actually producing like a net amount of energy. But my understanding is with things like corn biofuels, in fact, you use more fossil fuels making the corn than you get fossil fuels out of the <laughs> corn to ethanol production. Have you, have you looked into this issue or heard of this? I've looked into a little and yeah, that, that could very well be true. Okay, yeah. So it's okay. So, so the corn stuff already seems a bit crazy. Although I suppose... A funny thing about this corn ethanol production is that it means that the fact that we're like squandering so much corn for no reason means that we kind of have this excess ability to produce food that is currently just going to power cars that could potentially be quickly uh, repurposed if we have the intelligence to stop stop making the biofuels if there's a famine. That's right. So it does actually make us more resilient. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, is there much more to say on this integrated model? Well, the preliminary conclusion is that looking at the the lower cost resilient foods that looks like we can produce more than actual human need and so there would be some some leeway for some other uses yeah and then what we're trying to work out is well we know the cost of production but the price means the equilibrium between demand and supply mm. and so we think it's still going to be in the ballpark for the vast majority of people to be able to afford it okay I see. So, so I suppose one angle on this is looking at, you know, how many total calories are producing and is there enough protein and fat in the mix? The other angle would be just looking at what would be the equilibrium food price and then think, well, could people who are poor afford food in, in this situation? Which I suppose is, that's the relevant one if you're thinking about it, that we're still having food markets and food is still being rationed through through prices and your ability to afford it. And I guess just thinking about it in terms of food output would might be the way to think about it if you expect total food rationing the way, say, the UK had during World War II, where they were like, well, we've got this many calories and we're just going to split it between everyone (laughs) and uh, it doesn't matter how rich you are you can't buy more food even if you want to right but say in in a poor country even if you redistribute Mm. uh, people's wealth they still might not be able to afford it if you know if it were expensive on the world market yeah but potentially you could have international charity for that Mm. Yeah, interesting. So I suppose it's a lot easier for a single country to ration food. I mean, countries tend to have this kind of welfare system, like redistribution process internally, but then they don't tend to be as generous to to foreigners. And so you'd have a major problem in poorer countries where who's going to be sending them the food? (laughs) Who's who's going to be uh, denying their own people lots of food in order to to send it overseas? I suppose you get a bit of that, but you might not expect to be able to uh, feed billions of people that way. But fortunately, many of the less developed countries are in the tropics, mm. so they do have potential Actually, to grow food. <laughs> yeah, the charity might be running the other way, potentially. Um, so, okay, you've got, I guess, some economists who are developing these kinds of general equilibrium models, like looking at how the prices of different goods would shift and what might the price of food end up being under these different scenarios. I guess, so that's one way of envisaging this. Another way might be to try to bring some engineering common sense, perhaps, to it, thinking, you know, do we really have enough skilled people to, like, to scale up all of the rope production, what would be the bottlenecks there? You know, in the past, when we we're trying to do massive repurposing, how has this gone in general? Like, has it gone as quickly as people expected it to? Do you do any sort of analysis of, of that style as well? Maybe thinking about what could go wrong and, and how likely is it to go wrong? Well, one of the things we really want to do is actual pilots mm. of this to demonstrate that we can scale it up quickly. Mm. Okay, so that so rather than speculate, actually to see, like, if we get a bunch of people to try to do this, how quickly can they can they pull it off and what roadblocks did they face in getting there? Right. Yeah, I guess I guess you seemed pretty optimistic a couple of years ago, but it was very early days and a lot of these things you hadn't investigated as much as you have now. It seems like the picture is unbelievably positive, if I'm if I'm reading this right, that just the amount of different options we have for producing tons of calories is remarkable, given that you might expect that this idea of feeding everyone through a nuclear winter might be a bit of a pie in the sky dream that we'd never really accomplish. And maybe we'll just be trying to get a billion people through. It seems like feeding everyone no matter what is actually a viable vision. 
Potentially. I mean, one concern is the nutrition, mm. but now that we can talk about some outdoor growing and some greenhouses, we have a separate paper on nutrition that should be out pretty soon. There there are some deficiencies, but then there are potentially ways around them. Mm. Uh, if it's vitamin D, you might be able to go outside. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, there's going to be lots of UV, I guess, <laughs> yeah. like a similar amount of UV to before potentially. Certainly a concern here is that our initial modeling is assuming global cooperation, mm. that something the UK has a lot of potato seed, they wouldn't be able to grow them themselves. Would they actually trust another country mm. to grow the potatoes and then give them back more food than than originally? Mm. And so ideally, we could actually talk about some of these agreements ahead of time so that people could be pre-committed to it. I see. But certainly, we are concerned about cooperation breaking down. And mm. so we're going to be moving into a more regional geographic information systems or GIS analysis, looking at the resources of individual countries from a resilient food perspective, and then actually working out, well, what would happen if international trade turned off? Mm. It'd be much worse. Yeah. And what we're hoping to do is use that information to convince governments to actually cooperate. Interesting. Okay. So most of this modeling, and I guess some of this optimism, is driven by a picture where most industry is still around, people are still trading, there's still lots of ships, people are still chatting online, uh, able to you know, send seeds here and there and send information about how to grow potatoes to Thailand and, and whatnot. But if we envisage a world where, like, I guess economists call it autarkic, or you know, where each country kind of has to fend for themselves or each region has to fend for themselves, then things get a lot trickier because it's so much harder to like, bring together all of the components to, like, to really nail any one of these food supplies. And I guess you don't just want, want one because <laughs> then you have, uh, you're just like, only having carbohydrates and no, no, no nutrients and so on. So there's a whole lot of ways in which that situation is way worse. And that's part of what you want to see off by explaining this to people ahead of time and getting them to figure out how they're not going not gonna to end up in that situation. That's right. And there, in the past, like say 2007, 2008, the actual food production shortfall was less than 1%. Mm. But it was because countries doing export bans mm. that rice price went up three or even four times. And so it's a, it's a major risk, restriction of trade. And there's even potential of restricting more than just food trade if we lose that trust and cooperation. And that would be just catastrophic because then you lose energy trade and minerals and components. And the, the yeah. supply chain issues we've seen in COVID are nothing compared to that. Right. I guess so we're considering a bunch of different scenarios here. I suppose with Volcano, probably almost no infrastructure is destroyed. All the ships are still running. In the nuclear war case, a whole bunch of stuff is destroyed, but still a remarkable fraction is still online. I guess you have to kind of model these quite differently if you're trying to figure out, you know, what is the threat to international cooperation in, in each instance? Well, I think in the case of a super volcanic eruption, you could certainly have continent scale destruction of infrastructure, oh, interesting. Okay. similar with an asteroid impact. Yeah. Uh, so I, a similar order of magnitude, I would say. However, yeah, there are important differences. One reason why nuclear winter is significantly worse is because it's black particles going into the stratosphere. Mm. And those absorb the sun, and then they're lifted higher. Mm. So they can stay for a decade. Right. Whereas the volcanic, it's sulfate, more whiter particles, and they fall out faster. I see. But then also there's the, if you have a nuclear war, there's... there's Someone's been annoyed with someone else. (laughs) There might be some pre-existing tension. Yeah, yeah. Of course, it could be accidental, but but still, there's an enemy involved. And yeah, so cooperation would be even more challenging. Okay, yeah. Do you have an intuition for if there was a super volcano eruption, whether humanity would mostly pull together? I don't know. I suppose we're going to talk about COVID-19 in a minute, but my sense was cooperation during COVID-19 was pretty good and it could be even, even better during a volcano situation. Potentially. I mean, I'm very concerned that if people don't know about resilient foods, Mm. 
and then they, they conclude that most people are going to die. Well, it could be in the incentive of countries to do very bad things like steal food from your neighboring countries. Mm. And so I am very worried about that. And that's why I want to get the message out yeah. that, that we could actually <laughs> feed one yeah. if, we, if we cooperate. Yeah, that was, I guess, a big part of your vision of how you would have an impact in the in the first interview that I guess like some lurking fruit was just getting people to be aware that there's so much stuff that they could do that isn't going to war and stealing food that they, they should be, you know, extruding plastics to build greenhouses. That's actually a much better option. Is that still a big part of the vision for how all fed can ultimately make things better? Yeah, that that's a big part of the vision. Yeah, I suppose you've maybe already been spreading that that a little bit, but maybe it's more persuasive when you can bring more and more engineering details to bear so that you, people, people are actually properly persuaded that all of these things are viable. Yes. And this this country by country analysis, if we can know roughly what each country has in terms of resources, we could actually give them a draft plan. Hmm. Now, of course, they'll say it's wrong because of this reason and you don't know this classified information. Yeah. But we're kind of jump starting them. Yeah. And then hopefully they would you know, actually have a, a viable plan to respond quickly. Yeah. We've talked about a lot of individual foods and I guess talked about how, you know, some of them are more protein heavy, some more carbohydrate heavy, some might have some nutrients. Have you been able to think yet about like what is kind of the optimal combination of these of these different things to meet people's nutritional needs and I guess possibly even not be that disgusting to eat? Yeah, you, you could certainly make a, a very well balanced uh, appetizing <laughs> diet. However, my concern is that the poor of the world may have limited options. Mm. And so I'm particularly interested in putting together a diet of these lower cost foods, perhaps also some processing, you know, we make juice, there's pulp left over. Okay. It's typically fed to animals, but people could eat that. It's very nutritious. Mm. So we could make better use of residues as human food and that could be low cost. Yeah. Yeah. This may be a random question, but do most countries produce their own paper or is paper kind of a local production thing? Because it would be great if one of the key inputs that we need is spread out all over the place so that people can, you know, turn wood into, into food in each given city. My understanding is that paper production is quite distributed because the the actual wood going into it is not mm. that expensive, so you can't afford to ship it too far. Right. I so see. yeah, I think that's a good one for many countries. So this, okay, so in most places where they have timber, there's going to be paper production somewhere nearby, and that's pretty all over the place. Right. Okay, so in terms of figuring out what are going to be the bottlenecks, what are going to be the biggest challenges, and also just being able to persuade as many people as possible that this kind of that this broad approach is viable and will be able to feed most people. It seems like it would be really cool to have a group of people who say go somewhere where the sun is very weak, try to like, you know, eschew all other foods, uh, don't buy foods, and instead try to use these methods to produce enough food for themselves while just buying the kinds of inputs that you expect might be available in these sorts of scenarios. Do you think that it would be possible for you and maybe a team of other engineers to, I don't know, go somewhere not that hospitable in Canada and produce enough food to feed yourself using these sorts of methods? Well, what we've been focusing on is the the lower cost options. Mm. And so it's going to be lower cost to turn fiber into sugar mm. at, at the industrial scale. Yeah. However, it would be an interesting proof of concept and potentially relevant in very severe catastrophes if cooperation broke down and we, we can't build factories or repurpose factories. Yeah. So the solutions are going to be different, though. And so some things that could be done at small scale are are mushrooms. You know, if Mm. maybe some people have a lot of leaves or wood chips or something in their backyard, they could grow mushrooms on them. Rabbits can be done at small scale. They can digest cellulose. There is some work on whether we could turn cellulose into sugar at small scale, but we'd have to figure out the enzyme issue. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I guess I wrote this question before I'd uh, thought about all of the the list here, but let let me have a think about it. So I suppose it seems like 
you could plausibly try to do the like big rapid scaling up of seaweed. Maybe if you went somewhere on the coast and were like, you know, how much can we feed ourselves, you know, without high tech stuff, just trying to grow lots of seaweed quickly. I guess the greenhouses is a good one for seeing, you know, can people who don't have a lot of skill with greenhouses, you know, buy some plastic sheeting and grow food that way relatively quickly. The ones that aren't aren't super suited to to going out and just grabbing a bunch of people and trying it out is the paper mill reconstruction. You'd have to, I guess, (laughs) talk to a paper mill and rent rent out the paper mill or something and (laughs) retool it a bunch. And I guess the the methane production from gas, that's also maybe quite capital intensive. So we're talking like raising millions of dollars and like actually having a proper team try to build that. Maybe you could try seeing, you know, how hard is it to teach farmers in a tropical area to grow potatoes? That's something that could be tried on a, on a small level by someone who's willing to, to spend a year if they, could, if they could pay people to spend the time, you know, take the time away from their normal agriculture to, into, into growing a crop that normally they wouldn't. Yeah, we're definitely interested in these, in these demonstrations. But I guess I thought you were asking, well, yeah. what would work for a typical household? Mm. So you, if you're not in the tropics, then you can't do a greenhouse. If mm. you're not by the coast, you can't do seaweed. So, right. so you're much more limited. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What sorts of trials would you like to get to first? It sounds like maybe the, the cellulose to, to sugar one is particularly promising to, to give a go. Yeah, we're really interested. I mean, there are some paper factories that are becoming idle. Mm. Uh, we're using less of the what's called craft paper, the white paper. Mm. We're still producing a lot of cardboard for Amazon boxes. <laughs> God, you should see sometimes uh, what, it, what it looks like near the door to my house. <laughs> I, don't, I don't even know how the uh, like waste system is dealing with the extraordinary amount of cardboard that I see coming out of my apartment building. Well, it's it's actually a project up in Alaska in these remote communities that yeah. they still get Amazon free shipping. Right. And so they're looking at the cardboard as an energy source. Oh, wow. Okay, right. That makes sense. So so if there's a paper factory that's going to be going out of business anyway because the demand for its product is going down, then that mm. could be a great opportunity to do an actual example pilot of repurposing. Yeah, that sounds great. Are there any businesses doing the methane to, to bacteria? Yeah, there are a couple of companies. They're focusing on fish food at this point, but they're also interested in making meat substitutes. Yeah, interesting. Do you know any of the names of those businesses off the top of your head? Yeah, the, the methane ones would be Unibio and Callista. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'll, uh, we'll stick up links to, to their homepages or maybe maybe some research papers they've, they've put out. I guess... For some of these, it seems like survivalists might be, you know, survivalists who are serious about making it through lots of pretty grim situations could be extremely interested in the kind of methods that you're talking about here. At least, I suppose, the the greenhouses, you know, potatoes, that kind of thing. Is there any potential revenue stream or maybe a way of getting these materials and knowledge out there, selling it to the kinds of people who, for idiosyncratic reasons, are very interested in in, in these approaches? Potentially. But again, if if our goal is to try to feed everyone, Mm. we want to focus on these large scale solutions that would be lower cost. Yeah, interesting. Okay, so the kind of the basic picture is all Fed has limited resources. And the main thing you want to focus on is industrial scale, like we want to feed billions of people, we can't do this by just getting amateurs to go out into the forest and try to try to feed themselves, we we need a properly modern approach to, to feeding people through a nuclear winter. That's right. Have you gotten any interest then from governments or military or security folks who kind of, you know, spend more time thinking about how does a country get through a disaster? They seem like they might have the resources or the kinds of analytic capacity to think about this on a, on a larger scale than, than all Fed can. Yeah, we've definitely been talking to some governments. One issue is that for localized disasters, the cheapest thing is just to ship food in. Uh, okay. um, but there are scenarios where you might not be able to do that. Mm-hmm. And it could be valuable to have some local production of food. You know, one example is if you have a crop failure, that means you don't get any human edible food, but mm. you'd still have leaves on the crop. Mm. So if you could take those leaves, grind them up, get that juice, boil it, and you get a protein concentrate on the top, 
And that could be a, a good supplement. Okay, interesting. So that's the kind of thing that could be useful if you had crop failure and you also couldn't import lots of food. Yeah, like take, a hurricane take, maybe. Hurricane. Oh, interesting. Okay. I thought that there's some countries that have serious food security issues. I suppose Japan stands out as a country that imports a ton of the of the food that it eats and would be in trouble if for some reason trade got cut off in a in a war or otherwise. I suppose <laughs> maybe it's difficult for, for your team to liaise with the with the Japanese government or the Japanese military, language barriers among others. But I wonder whether there could be countries that might be interested in thinking this about, about this more seriously because they perceive food security and trade cutoff as one of the primary threats to the to the nation. Yeah, definitely. So they don't even necessarily have to believe in global catastrophic risk yeah, to yeah, be worried yeah. about trade being cut off. For so sure. yeah, other examples could be Singapore, countries in the Middle East. South Korea, possibly. Yeah. yeah. I guess the UK, actually, but... Yeah. yeah. And that's another example, like with, with the UK, with your port disruptions. Right, So yeah. <laughs> again, it doesn't have to be a global catastrophic risk here. If your ports were cut off for a certain number of months, you'd run out of food. Yeah, yeah. Just on that, I, I linked to an article that points out that it's astonishing how much the UK has managed to sabotage itself. Like a major issue is that after Brexit, the rules were changed about internal trucking within the UK, such that when truckers come drive in with imports from the EU, they're not allowed to transport food from between different places within the UK. I think they call it cabotage. It's basically a protectionist measure to protect the trucking industry within the UK. But it means that there's tons of trucks now driving through the UK empty because they're not legally permitted because they're registered in another country to transport goods within the United Kingdom. So, and this is apparently like a major contributor to the to the supply disruptions that the UK is having. Uh, for those who aren't here, there's like a lot of empty supermarket shelves at the moment and a remarkable amount of stuff out of, out of stock. And <laughs> to find out that this is much because of regulations that we're imposing on ourselves all of a sudden annoyed me a little bit. Uh, but yeah, it speaks, to, it speaks to the fact that this this can happen without necessarily having an external disaster that, that messes you over. I know something you've been working on the last few years is thinking about how you might feed astronauts, I guess, you know, on things like the International Space Station or ultimately one day on Mars. I think you got a grant from NASA to look into this stuff, right? Uh, yeah, tell the audience about that. It sounds pretty fun. That's right. Yeah, actually, three mini grants from NASA. And the idea was that there were three different types of foods that we were proposing. And we uh, proposed to do both a paper for applications in space and then also for applications on Earth and catastrophes. And the first one was hydrogen consuming microbes. So again, the single cell protein idea. And there are actually several companies working on this now, Avacom, uh, Novo Nutrients and Solar Foods. And so they're looking, basically you need electricity, which could come from solar energy or, or wherever, and you do electrolysis, which means splitting water into hydrogen and oxygen. And then the microbes consume the hydrogen and also carbon dioxide, and then you get a high protein product. And you could also produce the hydrogen by gasifying a solid fuel like biomass. Okay, so there's hydrogen eating bacteria, so they can eat H2. I'm guessing, I suppose we can speculate that these are from geothermal vents or something that, that produce or that emit hydrogen, among other things. And you could potentially basically grow these in vats by bubbling hydrogen up through the vats. And they're not poisonous to humans. They're like reasonable human food. And I guess you can get the hydrogen from solar panels or indeed from like energy, any energy source, because you just, you get hydrogen by like running electricity through water or something like that, right? Right. Okay. So this is like a way that we could potentially just like convert any electricity that we can make into human food. And I don't know, do you, do you know how nutritious these bacteria are? Would that come up? Again, they're very high in protein. Okay. Yeah. I guess they don't have all of the vitamins and minerals, but that potentially you could uh, just carry with you because it's so much smaller in, in volume. Is that something that we should have in mind for feeding people on Earth as well? Or is it so expensive that you'd really only do it if you're in space? 
Well, it's a little more expensive than some of the things we've been talking about. Our estimate was about $3 a day for all the calories for a person. And it could make sense, you know, especially if you have low cost electricity. I guess some people might be thinking, why don't we just take the electricity and then use LEDs to make light and then have the plants grow on the light? But people might recall from our first interview that photosynthesis is an extraordinarily inefficient way of converting energy into, into human food. You lose like something like 98% of the energy, I think, because chlorophyll just isn't a very good way of absorbing energy from, from electromagnetic radiation. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. So it would be something like 10 times as much energy to get the same amount of food out. Okay. as the hydrogen technique. So there's some inefficiency in converting the electricity into hydrogen and then inefficiency in converting it into bacteria, but it's still vastly more efficient than photosynthesis. Right. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So is there much more to say about this about this approach? Is this something that you could see people actually, you know, building factories to do anytime soon? Yeah, I mean, definitely the companies think so. And, uh, you know, again, they're looking at like a meat substitute. Mm. Okay, so they, so this is an alternative way of making protein, basically, that then could be put towards all kind of protein-y, uh, protein-y <laughs> activities. Right. Did any other things come of the, of the NASA grants? Yeah, so the next one, we focused on even a more bizarre type of microbe mm-hmm. that actually uses electricity as an energy source. Okay, what? <laughs> Do you, a hazard to us, but did you know how that evolved? Like, where, where was the electricity in the environment for bacteria to grow? It is pretty bizarre, uh, but bacteria are very flexible organisms. Yeah, okay, cool, cool. So, hold on, you put electricity through water and then the bacteria can grow from that electricity? Yeah, and and then you you still need to provide the carbon dioxide and and the other nutrients that mm. the microbes need to grow. Okay, and but it's, so it's kind of electricity is replacing light in this scenario. Yeah, or hydrogen in the case of mm. hydrogen microbes. Yeah. Okay. Go on. And so it it may be possible to eat them directly, but what we explored was actually using these microbes to make vinegar or acetic acid. Mm. Obviously, we wouldn't be eating that much of it but uh it does it would provide some diversification from the the hydrogen single cell protein if if we were trying to to make a an efficient space food diet yeah well i wouldn't want to be in space without vinegar um, what's the reason why eating the acetic acid is better i suppose it's because you're not destroying the bacteria in the process you're taking away this acid that they're releasing which has energy in it and then the bacteria are still there to keep producing it yeah an easy way to think about it is it's more efficient to make milk than meat yeah. Okay. Similar, similar situation. Okay. Cool. Is there anything else or should we talk more about the, the electricity eating bacteria? Well, this could potentially be applied on earth as well, but it, if we found it was more expensive than other alternatives, so it's okay. not, not as promising. Yeah. People have done this. So it, this isn't a hypothetical thing. It's people have grown these bacteria, got made them to produce acetic acid. That's yeah. right. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Any, any other options for space food? Yeah, so the last one is direct chemical synthesis of food. So that's not using a biological organism. Again, you would typically start by splitting water to make hydrogen, but then you chemically convert that into edible food. And that could be sugars or it could be glycerol, otherwise known as glycerin. Hmm. I guess that would require a bunch of different enzymes or a bunch of different chemical operations. It's actually chemical operations, so you don't need a, a biological enzyme. Right. Is this hard to do? Well, again, it's it's more expensive than some of these other food sources. But again, then you have a carbohydrate, uh, mm. so, so it'll help with that diet diversity. And then, like you said, these three foods are not going to be enough in terms of vitamins. So you'd, you'd carry some supplements, but that's yeah. much less weight than carrying <laughs> the food, which is what they do now. They yeah, right. launch the food at 
$10,000 for half a kilogram. $10,000 per half a kilogram. That's incredible. Roughly. Uh, is that, oh, is that, is that pre or post uh, SpaceX? That, doing that's, that's NASA. Yes. Yeah. That's NASA. So, okay. so, <laughs> should, so should be falling. Yeah. <laughs> cool. What about converting fossil fuels that I guess are very energy dense and trying to convert them into something that, that people can eat? Right. So this, this idea of an chemical synthesis, even though we could start with CO2, that's going to be pretty expensive. So on Earth, a more cost-effective way is actually looking at parts of fossil fuels. And there's precedent here that Germans in World War II actually produced some edible fat or coal butter, as they called it, from coal. And at this point, we think it's more promising to use a petroleum byproduct, a petroleum wax, and turn that into an edible fat. Yeah. Is that difficult or dangerous or anything? Well, we already have these uh, petroleum-based lip balms, and if you accidentally swallow a little bit, it's, yeah. a, it's okay. <laughs> so this particular process hasn't been done, so mm. this is an, an earlier stage. But our preliminary estimate is that it could be pretty cost-effective. Okay. I guess you have to do, so you have to change the structure of the lipid to a kind of fat that humans are used to eating and can digest. So it's a, a bit of like organic chemistry going on and, and you'd have to figure out how to do this on a, on a pretty big scale while like keeping it safe enough to be edible. Is that, that's a basic story? That's right. And, and our preliminary estimate was to get all the calories for a day was about $2. But the main value is that it's fat because many of these other resilient foods don't have very much fat in mm. them. And so by the end of the first year, we think this could be scaled up to about half the global requirements for fat. Yeah. Interesting. I've never heard of people, well, I guess, yeah, I've talked about this World War II case, but it seems like we never normally convert our fossil fuels into, into food. Again, is that just like a cost issue that there's no particular reason to do it right now? Well, you could say normal agriculture kind of oh, converts right. fossil fuel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not, 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 not through direct chemistry, I guess. Correct. <laughs> Is there any potential to use, you know, space industries need to feed people in space as kind of a stepping stone for funding research and development into these different methods that then could be used for these resilient foods on Earth? Or is space industry just so small that this wouldn't be like a big enough industry to really like bootstrap any of these approaches? I think there's potential overlap. It is at a quite different scale. I would say that, you know, one potential overlap with global catastrophic risks would be the the really extreme scenarios where potentially everyone has been killed, mm. that you could think of, well, can we make a refuge mm. with a thousand people that might be able to repopulate the earth? Mm. And Elon Musk is interested in doing this on Mars. So yeah. if we could figure out how to make an independent colony on Mars with fewer people, yeah. you know, with you know, less expensive, less infrastructure intensive food production, then I think we, you know, that could have some existential risk benefits. Yeah. I guess there's another option is doing that, but somewhere really remote on earth, like, you know, under the sea or in Antarctica or so on, where you'd also have to figure out how to feed people in worst case scenario. And there, I guess, sounds like you could potentially use a like nuclear reactor to grow bacteria and then eat them or otherwise just have stores of fossil fuels or like put it somewhere where fossil fuel you have access to fossil fuels and then you could in theory eat that yeah that's right so so again if you look at the the plans for having an underground bunker yeah you know typically nuclear but the plans were to go through regular plants and yeah, that's really right. inefficient. So, yeah, so yeah. we could lower the cost of this significantly. Yeah. Yeah. So was either you have like this enormous initial cost of stockpiling all the food and making it big enough to store food to feed everyone for ages, or you've got this yeah horrifically inefficient process of converting electricity into, into human edible food that now we can do 10x better on. Well, and the other thing that if you use the stored food, 
is that you're breathing out carbon dioxide and you need oxygen. Whereas if you have a system that actually grows food, either plants, which is of course inefficient, but these space-based resilient foods, if you want to call them that, they can act as the life support system Hmm. because they would actually take the carbon dioxide from the astronauts to make the food and then they produce oxygen. I guess another extreme scenario is a a runaway climate change scenario where it might get too hot for plants to live. Hmm. And so that's another scenario where having these these type of, quote, space (laughs) foods uh, could be a good food source. Interesting. Yeah, God, could be a very bizarre future, I suppose. <laughs> Mostly just eating bacteria grown in electricity. Again, it sounds like absolutely bizarre sci-fi stuff. <laughs> um, I kind of can't believe that it actually actually works, but it sounds, sounds like a principle it could. Okay, let's push on and talk less about the food specifically and maybe more about the kinds of catastrophes that could lead us to want resilient foods. I guess last time we spoke, you were mostly we're talking about nuclear winter with like a side dish of asteroids and volcanoes and maybe uh, super weeds and things like that. Have you learned anything new about like the relative magnitude or the relative probability of different reasons why we might end up wanting to use these resilient foods? Well, I, I think there's another whole class of catastrophes that could disrupt electricity or infrastructure. Mm. And one of them would be uh, solar storms. Another is a detonation of nuclear weapon at high altitude, causing an electromagnetic pulse, which could destroy electronics. Another one would be a coordinated cyber attack, perhaps enabled by narrow AI. Hmm. And a fourth one would actually be an extreme pandemic where people are too scared to show up to work at critical industries like electric power plants. Yeah. Yeah, do you have any thoughts on whether we should be more or less worried about those things versus the risk of a, of a nuclear war? Well, I think, as you've pointed out on other shows, the natural risks are probably lower probability. But the interesting thing about solar storms is that it's a new threat in a way, because mm. a solar storm a thousand years ago is not going to hurt us. Yeah. But now that we have this electric system that could be damaged, that's, that's a newer thing. So I think there's some threat there. I think it's unlikely to be global. But I, similarly on the food production disruption, I think even if we have a regional disruption of, of industry or electricity, mm. that's a significant shock and would also likely be accompanied by a food production shock. Mm. Yeah. Is there much to say about how swiftly we might be able to respond to something like an electromagnetic pulse that damages the electricity grid? Do we have like a good idea about how much damage that would do and how hard it would be to fix? Or are we kind of left to some extent to speculate about that? Well, there, there's some debate, and a uh, former guest, uh, David Rudman, has mm. done some analysis on this. Uh, we're actually working on a, a global analysis looking at the impacts of a solar storm. Mm. But I think that, you know, in the case of the solar storm, there might be something we could do ahead of time if we detect it. We might have a few days and mm. be able to turn things off. The the EMP is is tough, you know. It's by by nature, a weapon that would, yeah. Uh, yeah, I guess it would be designed to be a bolt from the blue. That would be the, that'd be the, the aim. Right. Are we sure that if you detonate a nuclear weapon at high altitude, it has this effect? Has it ever actually been tested? It has. And in fact, we kind of accidentally discovered how destructive it could be in the first test. Hmm. Uh, it had a, because it interacts with the atmosphere, it had a much greater radius of impact hmm. and disrupted electricity, I think, on Hawaii, very far away from the original test. Wow. Okay. Interesting. Okay. So we discovered this effect basically through testing. Have we ever gotten to the point where it's like, oh, we're going to like break electricity grids or test it at that level? 
I think there was a test in the Soviet Union okay. that was closer to people, and, yeah. and there was Has disruption. And yeah. and some people have said, well, there there may be these super EMP weapons developed at some point, mm. and they could be even more destructive. But even just regular nuclear weapons are, are quite destructive. Yeah. Do you want to comment at all on like the probability of us going from you know a pandemic or an electricity disruption to having disruption of agriculture and significantly less food for a while? So I think the modern society is extremely dependent on electricity. And so there there are these interdependent webs of causality here. So if you lose electricity, you lose typically a lot of fossil fuel production, you lose communications. And so basically you'd have a collapse of industrial civilization. Now, what we want to avoid is the full collapse of civilization, which includes cooperation outside of small groups. Mm. But if we lose this industrial production, then there are some immediate needs. Um, Alfred has a catastrophe planning expert who used to work in the Royal Air Force. And he has this kind of rule of thumb that you'll die in three minutes without air, three hours without shelter, three days without water, and three weeks without food. And... So fortunately, we're still going to have buildings, but we need to heat those buildings. Mm. And then we also need to provide water very fast. So we are looking at how how many people live close to water such that they could not have to move locations and still still gather water. But then eventually it's going to impact food because right now our system is very dependent on artificial fertilizers, pesticides, tractors, irrigation, etc. And at least the sun would still be shining. But it would require dramatic scaling of hand or animal tools Mm. to farm, which we're still working on. But we do have some estimate of the the direct impact on agriculture of losing these industrial inputs. It's something like cutting production in half. Okay, interesting. I guess we're slightly skipping between quite different scenarios here. So I guess if you have like a global pandemic where the fatality rate is like much worse than with COVID-19, such that people are much less willing to go to work and the fear would be that, you know, even if people are told very forcefully that they need to go and continue farming because otherwise people are going to starve, it might be hard to get people to do that. It seems like in that case, a lot of these alternative foods don't help so much because you would still have to have people gathering together in order to grow these things, like whether it's seaweed or greenhouses or or whatever else. People would be similarly reluctant to to go and do that. Am I misunderstanding? Well, I think it's a little different because in the case of just losing electricity and not having disruption of the sun, Mm. we can still farm by hand, basically, Mm. or animal power. And that can be done, well, one, outside, and two, at low density of people. You don't have Mm. to have people working together so much. And so if you think about subsistence farming, it's a more lonely job. Yeah. Now, it could be, especially if there's a trade disruption, and, and trade would be more difficult, of course, in these scenarios, that the just hand farming is not going to produce enough food, certain, mm. especially regionally. And then it could be that you want to do some of these more resilient type foods. Yeah, interesting. Okay, so I guess one pathway for pandemic uh, grading problems is also that people have speculated that eventually it could cause the electricity to go uh, grid to go down if enough skilled people have died or people are just completely not showing up to work even to run basic services like that. Setting aside whether that's likely, I guess anything that helps with an EMP attack or any like or you know solar storm also helps with this scenario where the electricity grid goes down for for any other reason. And I guess you're saying there's some ways that you can make food like subsistence agriculture or just like farming on your own that don't require 
close collaboration or like people getting together in buildings quite as much, at least not not in the long term once people are like actually out on the land doing things. And so we might want to have some, some process of figuring out how we would reorient how we produce food such that it involves less interaction between people. Yeah. And, and so that's kind of an added benefit that that it could also work in a pandemic scenario. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, coming back to the electricity grid one, I guess an EMP, it's at least somewhat localized. Well, I guess you could potentially have people setting them up off all over the place, but potentially it could be a local thing. And I guess solar storms as well, they tend to target particular parts of the earth that happen to be hit by them. I guess in that case, I wonder whether you just want to move all of the people to other places where the equipment is still running and the electricity grid is still up. Maybe that's the best way of producing lots of food is just to get people to places where it's going to be easier to easier to work. Does that sound plausible? Yeah, that that's one option. Assuming that people Trans- are what's up. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, uh, and then there's enough cooperation that mm. they could handle hundreds of millions Plus. of migrants. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Okay, so we've talked a bit about electricity. You also raised the issue of communication going down. How long do you think it would stay down, and how like severely would it would it be down, and how big a problem might that be? Well, again, it it depends on if it's regional or or global, and I think. Even though it's unlikely, it's possible that there could be multiple EMPs around the world. You know, you look at a full-scale nuclear war between Russia and and NATO, then you have most of Europe. It could even spread to other nuclear powers. I mean, that's the majority of the world's population and infrastructure. Yeah. So it's a lot of of people covered, potentially. Couldn't people still communicate by... I don't know, I guess like, are there sorts of radios that work for this if you really needed to? Or I don't know, maybe the mail? <laughs> I guess the mail might be down, but yeah. Yeah, or, or mail would be slow yeah. uh, on horses and such. <laughs> uh, and so one thing we've looked at is shortwave radio, or sometimes known as ham radio. Mm. And these they use a frequency that you don't need to produce that much power. You can have a $20,000 system that can actually communicate across an ocean. Mm. And so... It could only be a few million dollars to have a backup communication system. And this would be extremely valuable, especially if the catastrophe were abrupt, Mm. that we couldn't, we didn't have the internet to learn about what to do in this circumstance Mm. uh, so that we could get messages out of of what to do, how to meet basic needs, at least in the first few weeks. And then we'd buy us some more time. Yeah. I guess it seems like most countries do some stuff to prepare themselves against disasters. And it seems like this would be well within the, the budget to have ham radios in major cities for this purpose. There are some. And I think the issue is that countries will have systems for themselves mm. and uh, not every country has it. Yeah. So what we're interested in is doing a, a global system mm. uh, backup. Interesting. Okay. Cool. Is there much more to say on the solar storm EMP pandemic problems? Well, we've also done a cost effectiveness analysis for these interventions, and it's actually only for the long term future perspective. Hmm. But I think there are some, again, some mechanisms that this type of a loss of industrial civilization could cascade downward to loss of of conventional civilization. Hmm. And I mean, the last time we were at hunter gatherers, there were only uh, a few million people on earth. So, you know, 99.9% mortality. And, you know, again, are we sure we're going to recover from that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's been pointed out by many people that the situation in New Zealand could be pretty good in nuclear winter scenarios, potentially a pandemic. But I question that partly because of people can move. You know, mm-hmm. if people can recognize, well, there's lots of food in New Zealand, then I'm concerned that, that there will be a lot of migrants that would overwhelm that food supply. 
Yeah, I guess it's a uh, there's a bunch of things to say about that. I guess it's a long way away. So in as much as it's hard to travel or like ships are damaged, maybe it could just be difficult to make the journey all the way to, to New Zealand. I guess from a like, do people survive point of view, if lots of people move to New Zealand, maybe only a fraction of them end up surviving because it's now overpopulated relative to what it could support. But it seems like at least some of them should end up surviving unless they end up destroying all of the infrastructure in the process of fighting over like who gets to who gets to be there. How are you envisaging uh, this playing out in your mind? Well, I think the question is, do you think the food supplies could be sufficiently protected? Hmm. Because if all of a sudden we have half as much food, if the food is shared equally, everyone's going to die. So you have to be really confident that some food will be protected. But don't, so like people like progressively starve and then the people who are left, in a sense, you end up with the number there that is, it's like, do you see what I mean? That it's hard for us to go to full extinction. There's this thing of like, lots of people would move to New Zealand and so they wouldn't survive it has a bit of this property of it's like uh, no one goes there anymore. It's too crowded. <laughs> Where eventually the population has to has to keep lowering until the amount of food throughput is there like enough to sustain the people who remain. That's if there's food production. Hmm. But the concern is if we are above the carrying capacity and everyone, let's say we divide up the food we have remaining and everyone has one year of food yeah. and the sun is blocked for five years then everyone's going to die. So you basically have to protect stores of food for some people. Yeah. I guess the hope with New Zealand was that you would still be able to produce food reasonably well there, maybe have to change crop to some degree. You'd also have a lot of seafood, potentially a lot of like ability to grow seaweed because there's a long coastline. So the hope would be that there would be significant production there. But I suppose if you're also in the middle of a war because another country is invading you in order to get access to that land, then that production might be a lot, lot lower. Well, and also if people are desperate, they're going to eat the seed corn and then, you don't, then you can't grow anymore. And it's the same thing with fishing. If you fish the fish to extinction, then they, you don't have any more supply. Yeah, it seems like that would require a lot of short-sightedness, although I suppose I wouldn't put that past humanity potentially. I guess this is one reason why you want to promote the message even in New Zealand that it would be possible to feed everyone or to feed a lot of people to try to get them to be thinking longer term and to be thinking about production rather than just protecting the supplies that they that they already have. And, and you want them to worry about eating the seed corn effectively. Well, and, and globally, such that people could be fed where they are now, and then right. they don't overwhelm than, New Zealand. Okay, I see. So this ties back into the plan of feeding the whole world in that if people around the world think that their best bet is to stay put and try to produce food, then you don't end up with these mass migrations and all of the chaos and disruption of production that that might entail. Right. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Should listeners be doing anything in their own life, potentially to prepare for some of these possible disasters? I suppose there's like a reasonable long list that we've talked about, but yeah. Do you have any, have any lifestyle advice? Well, there's general recommendation of having two weeks of food and you can justify that just based on an extended hurricane outage. Yeah. So I think that's pretty, pretty obvious. I'm personally don't store more food than that because I'm more interested in keeping the whole system functioning. Yeah. But another thing I do think about is that, you know, I think there is a a significant risk of a full scale nuclear war. And so I'm personally concerned that so many EAs are living in typically in the city centers of NATO cities. Mm. And so it's interesting that their typical city real estate prices are such that it's more expensive to live in the city center than in the outskirts, because in the outskirts, you have a long commute. Mm. But this this gradient in real estate price 
is generally not taking into account the risk of nuclear war because most yeah. people just ignore it. Yeah. So you could potentially exploit this. And if you are concerned about the risk of nuclear war, living further away could be optimal, especially if you could have a commute where you could multitask. Yeah, right, right, right. Or I suppose, you, I guess now, if you can work remotely, uh, or, the benefit exactly, is, yeah, exactly. people spreading out as it's harder, harder for everyone to get, to get killed that way. Yeah, you're right. I guess a lot of listeners to this show, I, well, I can see in the analytics that a lot of people are in London, Oxford, SF, LA, New York, uh, Sydney, Berlin. Yeah, all all probable targets, except maybe Sydney. I'm not sure about Sydney. Well, maybe once they have these nuclear submarines that they're talking about, then <laughs> they'll target Sydney as well. But interesting idea. How far away do you have to live from a city center to not get toasted? Well, it really depends on how many nuclear weapons are used and you know whether it's just US as the target or all of NATO. But I think that just living on the outskirts of a city is, is quite a bit lower risk. Enough. Okay. Nice. And you could also live in a smaller city, but that might not always be feasible. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Was there much more to say on the cost effectiveness of these alternative concerns like EMPs and so on? Well, yeah. So in our cost effectiveness model, again, we're looking at the high leverage opportunities. And in a way, I think it would be less expensive to get ready than for the resilient foods for nuclear winter because we don't have these expensive factories we need to pilot. Hmm. We won't be able to make factories. So the experiments will probably cost less. Hmm. But we do need this radio backup system. But again, a few million dollars or so gets us pretty far. Hmm. So we're talking, again, in the range of something like $100 million. And if if you do think there is plausible long-term future impact, yeah. uh, then again, we compare it to an AGI safety model. And again, lots of uncertainty, but... It seems to be competitive, at least at this lower funding amount. And and I remember when we, we posted this on Less Wrong, one person summed it up and they're like, well, yeah, we should spend a few percent as much money as we're spending on AI safety. Mm, yeah, yeah, makes sense. I guess, yeah, while we're on the cost effectiveness analysis, last time around, we talked about these these papers that you've written that you mentioned earlier, um, estimating how much it would cost all Fed to save a life uh, an expectation. And sometimes those analysis would come out with very low numbers in the like hundreds or, you know, even single dollars potentially. I guess some folks thought that was too low and there was a bunch of debate going on online about about those estimates. Yeah. How has that conversation played out since we last spoke? Well, yeah, certainly people have different intuitions in the in the cost and the effectiveness. But I think that overall, these these resilient foods and then the interventions for for loss of electricity are just so neglected hmm. that I think there's a good case that it's cost effective at the margin now. Yeah, yeah. It seems like you've been making a lot of progress on analyzing these various different options over the, over the last couple of years. It, it feels to me like your like knowledge about which ones are most promising seems significantly more developed than it was in 2018. Yeah, we like to think so. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah, I guess... It kind of seems to me like all Fed is above, like given given the total amount of funding that's available for catastrophic risks and also for you know more near termist effective altruist projects, that growing all Fed isn't super close to the margin, or maybe it's not necessary to you know spend a lot of time debating exactly like how many lives do you save per dollar using this approach because it's relatively straightforward that we should be funding it to, to reasonable degree anyway. I guess maybe if you were advocating for a massive scale up in the order of hundreds of millions or something, then might want to have like more of a dispute about how it compares with other things. But at the at the current scale, it seems like the time is better spent looking into the foods maybe than <laughs> than debating exactly the the cost effectiveness. Yeah, I would be happy to move on from yeah. cost effectiveness, uh, <laughs> but but I think that you know we're still not seeing the the response we're looking for in terms yeah. of of being a significant part of the existential risk portfolio. Yeah. Okay, well, let's talk about that. So for all Fed to really flourish and grow in coming years, like what would you be seeing it doing? 
Well, so one of the things is really proving these things out. Like we talked about, you know, doing actual factory experiments or, you know, for the cheaper experiments, smaller scale and show that we can, we can do this fast and we can feed people. Yeah. Are there any particular experiments? Uh, do, do you have kind of a prioritized list of what you would do first and what you would do second, depending on how much funding you got? Well, one that we think is particularly promising is this repurposing of a small paper factory Yeah, yeah. Um, because of the low cost food. That makes a lot of sense. Do you have a sense of how much it would cost to rent out a paper factory for a while and uh, give it a crack? Well, it really depends on the size, but we are talking millions of dollars. Now, we would hope to be able to get some co-funding from the industry itself mm. if, if they see some value in this. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, we do need significant more investment. And where is most of that going? Is it you know operating, renting these large amounts of equipment? I guess you also need to buy timber. You probably need some skilled people to figure out how to re- reconfigure the factory. Right. I mean, we need those extra components. Yeah. Okay. I see. So you take the mill, it's got a lot of the stuff you need, but then you need to like add various different other pieces of equipment that you would have to buy specifically for this purpose. Right. Yeah. Okay, cool. So if you wanted to do that and a bunch of other experiments, what sort of like funding level are we talking about per year, do you think? Well, it's interesting. People have been talking about these mega projects mm. uh, within EA because the the funding resource has grown significantly. Yeah. And, you know, so I've been talking about on the order of a few hundred million dollars. Mm. Now, there's a question of how fast it would make sense to spend that. And there are some advantages to learning along the way and reprioritizing. But these catastrophes we're talking about, most of them could happen very soon. Mm. And so I think there is a lot of urgency to get this preparedness. Mm. And so I think it would make sense to spend this money in the next five or 10 years so that it really could be a, a mega project. Yeah. And what sort of funding do you kind of already expect to get? I guess you already have you know, some donors who take an interest and probably donate semi-regularly. Yeah. Where do you expect to be if you don't find anyone new? So we're very grateful for the funding we've received, including from the Center for Effective Altruism, Jan Talon, who's also on our board, uh, the Berkeley Existential Risk Initiative, Survival and Flourishing Fund, and many smaller EA donors. But it's hard to know whether these some of these are one-time or continuing. Yeah. Why do you think it's been kind of challenging to, to raise the sort of sort of funding that you want? Is there a way in which it's like falling between the gap where it's like, you know, the hardcore existential risk people want to focus on AI maybe and the people who want to focus on saving lives today uh, want to focus on like something that's more provable and less, less a hit space approach? Yeah, I, I think that is a, a big part of it, which is why we, you know, we're interested in, well, how big of a long term future impact do these catastrophes have? Yeah. The other obvious source of money is outside of EA. But then it's the opposite problem mm. that, you know, it's hard to get them to consider catastrophes that have already happened, like the year without a summer in 1816, which caused famine in parts of Europe. I mean, it's... Don't be ridiculous, Dave. That would never happen. <laughs> yeah, sorry, go on. So, but I mean, we, we, we are hopeful that with COVID now, some of these catastrophes are more imaginable, but we have, still haven't seen the fruits of that yet. Yeah. What sorts of people have you approached about the more normal seeming food shortfall, like, you know, a volcano that interrupts agriculture? Yeah, or or these these climate risks of, you know, even though the the slow climate change of a few degrees C, I mean, I think that that could inflate food prices, that could make some of these resilient foods like seaweed more cost effective. Mm. But but even more severe are the abrupt climate change scenarios, like a loss of 10 degrees Celsius over a continent in one decade. That's happened to Europe before. Mm. Uh, so it could happen again. So yeah, we we do think and you know like that's considered a a tail risk that yeah. that's much more severe than than what most people are thinking about. Yeah. So yeah, we think it we think it makes a lot of sense. 
The question is whether they can actually incorporate it into their financial models. Yeah. So you've approached governments and foundations about this sort of thing. And are they just like, it's kind of this kind of risk management of unusual things just isn't on their on their radar or they kind of stare back blankly at you? Yeah, I mean, talking to World Food Program, they're they're just stressed out with the current food situation mm. and just can't think of anything bigger. I guess, yeah, we've seen that there's some various potential connections with the reducing reliance on animals and reducing factory farming folks. I wonder if there's any potential funding streams there from people who are interested in you know alternative proteins, basically, which happens to line up with resilient foods. Yeah, well, we've talked about the the fermentation and the seaweed, mm. but there's also, I think, would be relevant is the leaf protein concentrate because mm. that could potentially be used as a meat substitute. Yeah. Do you have many donors who are kind of earning to give to to support Orfed among other organizations? Yeah, we do have some, and and there was this interesting concept I read about on the EA forum, which was earning to give plus, mm. and it observed that it may be harder to earn to give and maintain motivation because in comparison to working at an EA organization because you're not surrounded by like-minded people as much. So the idea was to have more interaction with the charity that you're giving with, mm. you know, perhaps volunteering or, or being a part of the, the process. Yeah. Yeah. So do, do you have any only to give people who are, who are volunteering as well, or at least stay in regular touch? Yeah, to some extent, but we want to look into it more. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that sounds like it could be a, could be a pretty fun path. Okay, so there's obviously potential donors to Orfed uh, in, in the audience. I guess you just want to like directly make a pitch to people to, I don't know, maybe go on the website and learn more about what you're doing and, and consider donating? Sure. So yeah, we actually have a, a new website and we accept crypto as well. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I think that on a number of value systems, whether it's near-termist or, or long-termist, I think that we're working on something that is highly neglected, large-scale, and, and it's quite tractable. I think that there are clear paths to make progress, to prove out these technologies, and, and really get, get governments and corporations ready to, to scale up food production in a catastrophe. Yeah. Yeah, it does seem like you've got so many, uh, like such fertile terrain to run trials on all these different options and, and see whether the things that you've been saying here or the, the estimates are approximately right. I mean, it's, if broadly speaking, what you've been saying is shown to be right, then it does seem like we can go from <laughs> expecting most people to starve in a lot of these cases to have expecting most people to make it through and that it might not even be like that challenging or we just need to do some planning ahead of time and make sure that like lots of people are aware that this is what they should be thinking about should there be a massive food shortfall and, you know, <laughs> have lots of books <laughs> describing these different options and, and how to scale them up, like distribute all over the place. And that could actually just go a ton of the way by itself. Yeah, I think that's right. And especially in the case of loss of communication, mm. that's the other way of, you know, if we can get the message out ahead of time. Mm. But of course, if you get the information out and then things don't go according to plan, it's mm. good to have that feedback. So, yeah. so having a two-way communication system. Makes sense. Okay. Pushing on from funding to people. Yeah. What current vacancies do you have open or might you expect to have open over the next six to 12 months? Well, right now we're, we're really focused on fundraising, Yeah. but Joshua Pierce, the co-author of the book, Feeding Everyone No Matter What, just switched universities and he has funding for several PhD students and he's interested in bringing them on and, and working on some all Fed related stuff. 
Yeah, what, what sort of PhD projects? So is he an engineer or uh, more involved in agriculture? He's an engineer. He's particularly excited about the leaf protein concentrate, also mm. because of mitigating current malnutrition. Mm. It's a good source of protein, but also a, a number of vitamins. And so, you know, we have a, a recent paper where we were mapping out the leaf resources globally and where there's current malnutrition. Mm. So we still need to do more work on what leaves are actually non-toxic. But he has a, a fancy piece of equipment that can run toxicity analysis, and he's working on an open source program that'll make it much lower cost to run these analyses. Hmm. Are there any skills or aptitudes that you could see potentially being a bottleneck for you in, in future if you were to get you know something in the in the tens of millions of funding, perhaps? Well, we we certainly are interested in more GIS analysis when we start looking at this country by country. What's what's GIS? Oh, uh, geographic information systems. Hmm. And there's a lot of coding associated with that. We're definitely interested in more uh, people with knowledge of policy and international relations so that we can have a better idea what cooperation scenarios might be plausible. Yeah, interesting. Okay. What kinds of academic backgrounds do, do the people you're at Fed mostly have? Is it like lots of engineers or, or like more wide ranging? It's a fair amount of engineers. We also have some social sciences. We had a regular call, which we called CRASH, Catastrophic Risk and Social Sciences and Humanities. <laughs> and uh, we were, one of the things we were looking at is, you know, are there historical analogs like past pandemics? Because you know, we were concerned about the, the food impacts. And so, yeah, it was great to have contributions from history and sociology. Yeah, I imagine historians of war might have a bunch to say about this. So perhaps you were talking earlier about Germany using converting coal to to lipids that people could eat during World War II. I wonder whether there's other cases that people might be aware of if we if we looked into it enough. I suppose there might not be cutting edge in any case, but well, there is a book called Famine Foods, I believe, mm. that looks historically at what people have eaten in famines. Yeah. Did you get any of the ideas from there, or uh, is that kind of a separate stream of things? Uh, there, there may be something. I mean, we're some people are looking into the. Um, they call it the inner bark or the cambia of trees. Oh. You can take the bark off and then strip that living layer of the tree off and make it into a flower. Okay, interesting. I guess that kills the tree in the meantime. Uh, yes. Okay. And I'm guessing that's somewhat limited because, well, it sounds like a bunch of work. Also, you can't get that many calories from that in total, I would I would imagine. Right. Uh, you really, yeah. So I suppose that's maybe, it's, it's like, seems like semi-inspiration potentially for doing the pulping into, into sugar thing. You're like, well, this is what, like the first cut <laughs> of turning wood into food, but then there's a whole lot more that we can do beyond that with the rest of the, with the, rest of the tree. Right. Okay, yeah, I guess an unusual thing about all Fed's approach is that it makes use of quite a lot of volunteers. Yeah, how does that work? Well, I, I think it is a little bit easier for us in general because we can employ many different fields mm-hmm. and also... You don't need to have a lot of background information because we're asking really new questions. Mm. So I think it's easier to make progress. And so, yeah, and there's lots of people in EA that want to skill up in research. Mm. Uh, we also have some volunteers that are doing things other than research. Yeah. But yeah, we have a pretty formalized system. People come in and they do a taster task mm. so, so that we can see if it's a good fit for them and a good fit for us. And then on the research side, We have a team weekly meeting where we try to get as many people together at the same time so people can see what what other people are doing. But then we also have smaller group calls that are focused on particular topic areas, like Mm. we had the the Green Gang was the photosynthetic people. And those are the people that are typically co-authors on the papers. And also it's nice that, you know, sometimes volunteer will will have to leave. Mm. But then the other people on that small call can can pick up the work. Yeah. 
Okay, so you do have some attrition rate, but people are working in groups such that like the, the knowledge kind of kind of carries through. Right. I guess has this prompted people to potentially like, you know scale up their interest in these things and then maybe go on and do a do a PhD or something in in these topics based on their exposure as a volunteer. Yeah, we we have one person who is is getting a master's and relevant. And also several people have transitioned to full-time work at Alfed from volunteering. Nice. I guess I recall that you have quite a lot of thesis ideas on effective thesis. Is is that right? Is uh, is that still the case? Yeah, around 60 or so. 60, okay. (laughs) (laughs) An abundance of of different thesis options, yeah. Yeah, we just had a a student recently complete her thesis in in Germany. It was on this... uh, agricultural yield in the losing electricity and industry scenarios. Yeah. I guess something that's kind of convenient about about this sort of work is that each of these streams of possible projects can to some extent be conducted independently. So the seaweed people can continue pursuing the seaweed thing and see whether it bears bears fruit. And then the people focused on the hydrogen thing, they can do that. They don't necessarily have to talk to one another, another a ton. Is that kind of right? Or is there maybe more need for coordination than, than I imagine? I think quite a bit can be done independently, but then, of course, to do the integrated model, then we have to look at all the interactions. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, do you think that's likely to be kind of a structure that you have, that you have like some people in the middle coordinating and maybe prioritizing between these things as information comes in, but then you have hopefully lots of people to some degree independently, maybe just as part of their like academic research in general, investigating these different possible opportunities and figuring out how viable they are? Yeah, I think that's right. I guess if people are interested in volunteering, I guess possibly already working on something a little bit adjacent, how can they get in touch? Well, one easy way is just to go to our website, allfed.info, and there's a contact page. Nice. Let's push on from Allfed and Resilient Foods and maybe talk about bigger picture scarcity issues. I guess, given all of the above, folks might kind of expect you, Dave, to be a bit pessimistic about humanity's prospects because we're talking about doom and gloom and uh, like how to prevent famines and so on. And I guess a lot of people who worry about food shortages and famines like you do also worry about civilization running out of all kinds of other resources and potentially crashing and burning as a result in coming decades uh, because of climate change or, or whatever else. But I saw in your notes that you tend to be actually relative to the mainstream culture, pretty hopeful, uh, very, very hopeful, I'd say, that we can solve most of those problems, uh, barring the kinds of catastrophes that you're worried about really uh, throwing us off track. Maybe we could go through a bunch of different things that people worry about potentially uh, creating big problems in coming decades, and, and you can react to them from an engineering perspective. Sound good? Sure. I guess energy is kind of a classic one. Well, yeah, what do you make of the idea that we're uh, not be able to make enough energy to support things? Right. So recently, Carl Schulman provided some answer on this. But I think that, you know, in addition to thinking about solar and wind, there's this concern of intermittency that uh, wind's not always blowing and the sun's not always shining. Hmm. And, and he mentioned that we could use chemical batteries to even that out. And that's true. But it turns out there are some lower cost ways of doing that. And one of the research projects I had when I was at Princeton was looking at compressed air energy storage. Hmm. So you need somewhere to compress the air. That could be an above-ground tank, though that's fairly expensive, but better is compressing it like in a mine. Or even just, you just pump the air underground into an aquifer. You're Hmm. just displacing the water. And it turns out this is much less expensive, especially if you're storing the energy for a longer period of time, like days. Mm. And you do need to store it longer in the case of of wind, especially. Yeah. Okay. So I guess, is there a way of thinking about the cost of these different things? Like what's the, you know, amount of energy stored per, I guess, per hour, per dollar, it might, might be the measure of efficiency, right? Well, it's sometimes helpful to think about the difference between power and energy. Mm. So power is the rate of use of energy. And so if you don't need energy very long, a chemical battery is good. Mm. So like in a car, 
But if you need a long time, you need some way of storing a massive amount of energy. And yeah. so rather than building something like a battery, if you can just use air, yeah. uh, then it's much cheaper. So what are the pros and cons of uh, compressed air? Well, the way it's currently run, one of the cons is that when you compress the air, it would normally get really hot. So you actually cool it down in between mm-hmm. and, and then you inject it in the ground. But then, since it's cool to start with, if you let that decompress, it would get to very low temperatures. Mm. So typically, they burn a little bit of natural gas. Now, there are ways around that, but that's the cheapest way of doing it now. But still, looking at the overall carbon emissions of this, it's an order of magnitude lower than than a pure fossil system. Yeah. And how does it compare to batteries or, I guess, pumped hydro in terms of, yeah, cost effectiveness? Yeah, so so much better on the, the longer term storage. But pump hydro is another good one. Even just regular hydro, it's, it's nice that you can turn it on and off easily. Mm. But pumped hydro is where instead of you take this generator and turbine and run it backwards mm. so you're pumping the water uphill. And again, you're using water. So it's a really cheap way of storing energy. Yeah. I guess, as I understand it, the limiting factor with pumped hydro is having enough nice dams to, to conveniently store, store the water. Or you know, people would like to scale hydro power and they'd like to scale pumped hydro, but we kind of already have built many of the dams that are most practical in the, in, like, given the geographic constraints. Yeah, the pumped hydro is more geographically constrained. Yeah. I guess if compressed air is reasonably cost effective, especially in underground mine shafts or uh, you know, aquifers, why don't we use it now very much? Well, right now, in most places, the penetration of renewable energy is not very large. Mm. So we don't actually need storage. And then as it gets larger, we might be able to, you know, store it for an hour or two and, mm. and chemical batteries could work well for that. But for the very large renewable energy penetration, then we need more like days of storage. Yeah. Okay. So you think that's potentially in, you know, in coming decades as uh, wind and solar become a large fraction of the energy supply and we want to be smoothing out our access to energy over days or possibly even weeks, I guess, that compressed air could become a really big deal. Right. And then in the the extreme case, if you want to store energy seasonally, Hmm. you can generate hydrogen and pump that in underground aquifers. And then burn it when it comes out, right? Okay. Right. So, so the underground is where you store that, I see. Yeah. Okay. Is there, is there a way of communicating the, the cheapness of this? Or maybe is it, is it a bit too early in the development of the, of the technology to say you know, how much this would add to the cost of, of electricity? Well, roughly, we're only talking about one or two cents per kilowatt hour increase. Okay. So like at the point where you consume it, that's like a five or 10% increase or on, on, that, on that kind of order. Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Anything else to, to say on issues of uh, yeah us, us not having energy or not having as much energy as, as we want in future? Well, another thing I would say about mitigating this intermittency problem of, of renewables is that we can also make the demand more flexible. Hmm. And so this could be smart appliances, but a big one that, that I've worked a bit on is uh, thermal storage in buildings. Hmm. So we have this air conditioning that has a very peaky profile. You need a lot of air conditioning in the hottest days. So it's much more efficient if you could chill water at night and then use that over the day. And you can actually make your air conditioner cheaper because it runs a greater portion of the time. At night when, I guess, in principle, electricity could be made cheaper, basically. Right. So you kind of, okay, so you suck up the electricity when there's lots of it, and then you cool down water, and then the water cools down your house. Or I guess you can then circulate the water through the house, potentially. Right. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Any other thoughts on on energy? I guess uh, there's been a lot of chat lately about nuclear energy. It seems like it's kind of back on the back on the agenda, and people are re- reconsidering it. Did, did you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think it's promising. Of course, you don't have that intermittency problem, uh, mm. so that's that's one big advantage. 
And yeah, I guess the other thing I'd say in uh, part of my day job as a professor, we're looking at nuclear microreactors because Alaska doesn't have very many people. So the, the, <laughs> the only reactors that make One sense might be too many. Oh, yeah, uh, are, are these microreactors where it might be so a very large power plant could be nuclear, could be coal is around a thousand megawatts or mm. a gigawatt of power. But these microreactors could be one to 10 megawatts. Mm. And they're looking at making them passively safe and very low maintenance. And I think there's a lot of potential, especially in remote areas where they're using very expensive diesel-generated electricity. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on, is um, nuclear power a cost-effective way of producing energy compared to compared to alternatives? I guess, I think Mark Linus, uh, in, in our interview with him last year about, about climate change, so he, he thought that wind and solar, they'd run into this impediment that you'd find it very hard to get approval to cover as much land as you would need with them because you just wouldn't be able to get planning permission, basically. And, and also in places like the UK that are very population dense, there actually might just be a shortfall of, of land relative to what you need to power the whole country. And I guess he thought that nuclear power would end up being a whole lot cheaper. But this is like a very disputed, very disputed claim. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, certainly nuclear is very low land use. Uh, yeah. uh, but then, yeah, recently there's been discussion with Carl about the, the regulatory environment. So, yeah. so that's certainly a barrier. I would say for wind turbines, the actual land lost is very small. Mm. If you just look at the foundation and the access roads. So we're not really taking significant land away from agriculture. Right. Solar panels, of course, we can do some on our roofs, but that's not going to produce all our energy. But I think one interesting application is putting them in drier areas. Mm. Because right now in a dry area, it's limited by precipitation, not by sunlight. So if you have solar panels above them, they're actually reducing how much sunlight is coming down to the plants, which doesn't hurt them. And it actually helps them because then they're dried out less. Oh. So you might actually increase the agricultural yield under these solar panels. That's very interesting. Okay, so you're saying if you're farming in an area where there's lots of sun but not much water, then putting solar panels on top or like you know partially shading them might cost you almost nothing or like actually a negative amount in terms of agricultural productivity. But then you are capturing all of that sun that otherwise would be wasted because the plants wouldn't have enough water to photosynthesize anyway. Right. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. That's very cool. I'll see if I can find a find a link to something about that. I guess sometimes people say uh, if, if we scaled up nuclear energy a whole lot in the way that Mark Linus would want, we would uh, run out of uranium. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, there's a few things. I mean, right now, the way we do it, it's we don't use very much of the fuel but there's reprocessing that's already happening. There's the possibility of breeder reactors. And what, what are they? So I, I'm not an expert here, but yeah. my understanding is that through the operation of these plants, they're actually producing fuel that can be used in the future. Hmm. And so I think you can reduce how much you have to mine by at least an order of magnitude. Okay, yeah. And then there's just the the question of, well, are we going to run out of mining eventually? And, you know, it turns out the actual cost of uranium is a very small cost compared to the total cost of nuclear electricity. So we can afford to have it increase. There's even been demonstration of pulling uranium out of ocean water. Right. Okay. Which I guess is expensive, but then it might still be a small fraction of the total cost of the plant. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What other resources do you have thoughts on where you think maybe mainstream pessimism is mistaken? Well, I think there's this concern about the energy return on energy invested. Mm. And this is a concept that says, well, if I build a solar power plant, I'm going to take some energy to do that. And then how much energy do I get back out? Yeah. And so obviously for this to be useful, you have to get more energy out than you put in. Sure. So that ratio has to be at least one. 
And people have pointed out that for fossil fuels, it's typically very high, like mm. over 10 times as much energy you get out than what you put in. Yeah. And for renewable energy, it's not as high. Maybe it's only three or five. And there are some people that have said, well, in order to have a modern industrial economy, you need to have this ratio be five or even 10. Mm. And so I looked at the paper and it doesn't seem what? to be supported. <laughs> yeah. Because, I mean, basically... It, say you have an energy return on energy invested of only two. That means you have to make twice as much energy mm. and you only get to use half of it. Yeah. So that because means half of it goes into making the energy again. Right. So roughly the cost of energy goes double, but it's not that large to start with. So yeah. it's not catastrophic. Yeah. Now, some people have pointed out, well, yeah, you get these high energy return on energy invested for solar and wind because we're producing electricity and every unit of electricity is displacing three units of fossil fuel if the power plant is only one third efficient, okay. roughly. But what if you actually need a fuel hmm. you know, to, to run your car? Okay, well, then you have to use the electricity and you make it, say, turn it into hydrogen. Well, now you're not substituting for so much fossil fuel. It's more like one to one. And that that is a valid point, that your energy return on energy invested is not as good if you're making a fuel. This is because of the inefficiency involved in converting electricity into hydrogen and then the hydrogen into uh, you know movement. Yeah, so that's part of it. But even if that were 100% efficient, you still have the issue that then the hydrogen substitutes for only one unit of gasoline or petrol. Oh, oh, and this is because of the inefficiency of converting fossil fuels into electricity, where you actually lose most of the energy. Even even in a coal plant, I think you lose most of the energy. Exactly. Yeah, in, into just heat. Okay, oh, great. Yeah, go on. So there are concerns that, that then the energy return on energy investment is going to be a lot lower. Mm. And if we get below one, we're in big trouble. Yeah. But if you look at this economically, right now, fuels are much cheaper than electricity because right now it takes three units of fuel to make unit electricity and you have to pay for the power plant. Yeah. So we use a lot of fuels directly, like yeah. in our cars and heating houses. But if now our fuel is hydrogen, that's going to be more expensive than electricity. Mm. So we're, we're going to use much, much less of it. We're going to use electric cars and we're going to use electric heat pumps to heat our houses. Yeah, I see. And hydrogen would be preserved for those situations where you need an incredibly dense store of of energy and you can't get electricity or or some other reason like that where electricity isn't going to be optimal. Exactly. Like rockets or airplanes. Right, right, right. Whereas now, because the liquid fuels like oil are the cheapest, we just throw them at everything without needing to worry so much about the cost. Exactly. Okay. And, and so basically, even though we could have some part of our economy that is not very good on the energy return on energy invested, mm. it's a pretty small percent. Yeah. Okay. There was this debate set off by someone who I won't name, <laughs> who was claiming that in the UK, solar panels didn't actually return energy, that on net they were energy absorbers. So it's like basically more energy goes into making the solar panels than they produce over their lifetime. As far as I can tell, this is just completely wrong. It's just factually wrong. I mean, it could be probably if you started putting solar panels in like, I don't know, really northern Norway or like somewhere where the, the, the amount of solar radiation hitting the place, I guess it would actually have to be in the Arctic Circle or something. But if, if you went far enough, this could be true that the solar panel wouldn't produce as much electricity as, as was required to manufacture it. But in the UK, which is a relatively bad case, not, not a very sensible place to be sticking solar panels on a global level, they still do produce much more electricity than, than is required to, to make them. And you, I'll do a link to a blog post that just demonstrates that this kind of has to be the case just based on some back-of-the-envelope calculations. Yeah, do you have any more thoughts on this energy in, energy out uh, ratio? Yeah, well, so so one way you can say that is, well, they would be extremely expensive <laughs> if it took so much energy exactly. to put in. Yeah. However, yeah. you could say, well, we're using cheap fossil fuels to make them. Hmm. So it is true. There's the other factor here is that if 
the renewable sustainable energy is more expensive to begin with, and then you have to multiply it by two, then you're getting even higher costs. But yeah, if you're in that case where you need to make the hydrogen fuel, well, you do that in the desert. You don't right, do yeah. that in the UK. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, no, that, that would make a ton, ton more sense. Yeah, so the calculation was saying, like, let's assume that this was using, like, the cheapest electricity that's available anywhere, you know, in, in China. So it's using dirt cheap electricity at fossil fuel prices. And let's say that all of the cost of the, of the solar panel was just, like, energy consumed out of the electricity grid. Then, like, this is how much energy you would, you would get for that. And we know how much electricity the solar panels actually produce. And the ratio is still high, even taking these very pessimistic assumptions. So that's one way of, at least of the is clear cut. You can show that you're getting a positive return. Yeah. Any more thoughts on energy before we push on? Well, I guess people are also worried about the minerals required to make these renewable energy plants. Yeah. And so they'll look at wind turbines and say, well, these generators use these permanent magnets that use rare earth minerals. And that's true. But it's also true that with a slight penalty in efficiency, we could use a simple copper coil or even aluminum coil which is even more abundant, and make these generators. So generally, you can just have a small penalty in performance and use something that's much more abundant. Yeah. I guess that seems like this is going to be kind of a recurring error that people make in thinking, where they look at exactly how things are done now when something is abundant. And then they say, well, we're using this thing that currently isn't that expensive, and this became very expensive, then we just like, couldn't do it. And they don't realize that there's nearby substitutes that, while somewhat worse at the current price, will be totally viable. And there's not obviously a supply constraint here with like copper or aluminium as alternatives to these, to these rare earths. Yeah. Do you have anything to say about that? Right. Well, and the case with copper, I mean, people are worried about running out of copper as well. But then I looked at the concentration of aluminum in just regular dirt. It's higher than copper is in copper ore. (laughs) So we're not going to run out of aluminum. Same thing for iron, for steel, Mm. and also for cement, for concrete. It's about 10% of the Earth's surface. So there's some things that we need a lot of, and they're just super abundant. Yeah. Where's, where's the copper going? Isn't it gone into products that we could potentially grab the copper back from? Yeah, so that's that's another option, just more recycling. Okay, right, yeah. Uh, I suppose maybe you'd have to like dig up the landfills or something, which could be a pain. But I suppose in principle, if copper was so valuable, we'd find a way to do it. Okay, what about nitrogen and, and phosphorus, the ones that people often talk about? Yeah, so I actually wrote this paper with, uh, with Joshua Pierce again on looking at nitrogen fertilizer supply that would actually be sustainable. Because right now we take natural gas and we reform it to make the hydrogen, hmm. and then we combine it with nitrogen in the air, in the Haber-Bosch hmm. process. But what we said is, well, in the future, you could use solar energy or wind energy to split water into hydrogen and oxygen, and then use hydrogen with the nitrogen in the air. So that's fairly straightforward. But you'll hear people say, well, once we run out of fossil fuels, we're not going to have any artificial fertilizers anymore. Right. I guess the Haber-Bosch process is very energy intensive because it's very energetically expensive to break the bonds in the in like the N2, right? Because it's a triple covalent bond. I guess that, that's still going to be the case if we're using solar panels or wind. But I guess the thing is you could make this fertilizer this way using solar panels in a desert somewhere quite remote and then just like ship the nitrogen around, right? Right. And and I think what we looked at is even if you did it locally, you'd only take up a few percent of the land right. uh, on your farm field, which is much better than not using the fertilizer and then needing twice as much land. Wow. Hold on. What? 
okay, that's amazing. It's kind of a, I don't know, impossibility proof of this <laughs> not, not being viable. He's saying, you got a farm. Let's say that like your nitrogen supply was completely cut off. You couldn't get any from elsewhere. Instead, just stick down some solar panels, attach it to this thing that produces nitrogen. And given what we know about how much sun has to be hitting the plants, that would produce enough energy to like produce enough fertilizer and it, that it would like kind of restore the whole thing and you'd be doing about as well as before. Right. This is so great. Okay. <laughs> why, do people say, why do people say this is going to be such a big problem? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> Read the paper. Okay, right. We'll take a look. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, do, do you worry that there could be a mistake with these calculations somehow? Or Well, I mean, I think that one is pretty straightforward. We even did it. I didn't even think it would be very economical at the small scale of an individual farm. But even that looked, you know, you could actually scale down the, the Haber-Bosch process, okay. which was surprising to me. All right. Well, I won't lose any sleep over, over nitrogen. What about phosphorus? Well, phosphorus is an interesting one because people say, well, hey, there's no substitute. You have to have phosphorus to grow plants, Yeah, which is true. But if you look at the big picture, we could use less phosphorus, for instance, by eating lower on the food chain. Mm. Because right now we use so much phosphorus because we're growing plants to feed the animals. Mm. So that would be one simple way of reducing phosphorus consumption. Yeah. We could also recycle better. We could reclaim it from wastewater. Yeah. Um, yeah, where is the phosphorus going? Because it's it's an element; it doesn't disappear. It must be like just getting embedded into soil or into the into water or something. Yeah, going in the river and fertilizing seaweed. I see. Right. <laughs> okay. So go on. Uh, but then we could also just get better at extracting it from the earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, over the past century, if you look at the cost of minerals, mm-hmm. the inflation-adjusted cost or the real cost, it's been roughly constant, mm-hmm. which is pretty an amazing feat. Because we have had to go to lower concentration ores, we've had to go deeper Deeper. in the ground, but because of technological progress, the cost has remained about constant. Now, that's not guaranteed to continue. You know, the energy cost might get higher, like we were talking about, and maybe we just don't have as much technological progress. But the question is, is this going to cripple us? And so you can look at, well, of the total cost of food, how much is phosphorus? Even if phosphorus is 10 times as expensive, hardly affects the price of food. Right. I guess people grew food before phosphorus fertilizer, right? Because there's phosphorus in soil. It's just, it slows down the growth of the plants to not have added phosphorus, right? That's right. Okay, yeah. And I guess you're saying even if you had to do some very annoying way of getting phosphorus, like trying to pull it out of soil somewhere else, that it would probably, it would still be worth it in terms of the return to food grown and it wouldn't even increase increase the price all that much. That's right. Yeah, okay. Yeah, do you have... And I want to come back to this question of, do you have some theory of why people fret about these things when, do you have maybe a sociological theory of why people would fret about these things when it seems like some relatively straightforward calculations would show that they're just not going to be that bad? Well, I think one, one big source of confusion is that people will say how many years supply we have mm. of a mineral, say it's 20 years or 30 years, and they say, we're going to run out. Yeah. But what does that mean? Well, that's the reserve. So that means the amount of mineral that we can extract from current mines at current prices with current technology. Well, as we've said, technology is generally improving. Hmm. And even if it doesn't, if the price goes up, then all of a sudden a lot more resources become economical. Yeah. I guess there's also, yeah, so there's that. And then I guess it's the substitution issue, which doesn't apply so much to phosphorus, but it's like not seeing all the flexibility and how things could be rearranged in order to, well, I suppose, yeah, so, so one flexibility is getting more expensive supplies of these things. And the other thing is just cutting back on your use of them in all kinds of different ways that a business would figure out if the price went up. But it's not obvious to someone who's not in farming and doesn't know about how could you like use less phosphorus or use less, less nitrogen without it being massively inconvenient. Yeah. yeah, and one thing I didn't mention about even if 
the price of electricity goes up a lot mm. and, and energy in general, well, then we'd become more energy efficient. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> absolutely. I guess we have this, uh, I'm not sure whether you follow, but we have this energy shortage in the UK at the moment where the price of electricity has gone up several fold and the, the price of gas has gone up several fold as well. So it's going to be like a somewhat brutal winter from a like energy energy cost point of view. I guess it seems like the kind of thing that would ultimately be solved if it stuck around. Like part of the reason why we have this issue is that energy prices aren't super flexible in terms of what price I'm paying. I'm not paying the full wholesale price. Retailers are eating that and some of them are going out of, out of business. But you know, if the price of heating my home went up double or triple on some ongoing basis, people would change all kinds of different things about how they, how they build homes and how much they wear warm clothes at, at home in order to cut down on those costs. And then that would gradually make the situation less problematic. Yeah, so it'll be interesting to see how it turns out. But there's a famous use case actually from my state of Alaska, mm. uh, Juneau, Alaska, the, the capital had a cheap hydropower plant, mm. but then there was an avalanche and cut off the transmission line. So they had to use the backup diesel power mm. and price of electricity, I think, tripled. Mm. But people really, really conserved and fast. And the power authority said, it's going to take us a long time to fix it. But then all of a sudden, when the demand went down, they weren't making any money. They fixed it really fast. Oh, wow. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> yeah, just like initially, it was in their interest to uh, be charging a lot for the diesel stuff. But then they, so great was the loss in demand that, in fact, it was now in their interest to put the hydropower back up. Right. Wow. Fascinating. Um, okay. What about, I guess your main thing is food, right? So yeah, what about land to grow food, for example? I mean, it does seem like food I do kind of worry about, even in, in, in a normal situation, because it's something we can't go for very long without. And it does seem like we're kind of often at the kind of the limit of a bit what we can grow in any given year. And we don't have like very long to respond if there's terrible weather and so on. Yeah, so food is much more serious. And I kind of think of food and fiber together. And I think of fiber as very general. It can mean growing cotton for clothing, hmm. but it could also mean growing trees for building buildings and furniture and such. And those are the things that really take up a lot of land and we do need to pay attention to. Yeah. And it is true that if we had 10 billion people at the U.S. standard of living, you know, these calculations of the ecological footprint. So the ecological footprint is how much land it takes to support your consumption, like an individual's consumption. And you'll hear these things that, you know, if you had 10 billion people at American standard of living, you'd need three earths or something like that, which is true at current productivity and, and yield. Mm. And so this, this is a serious concern. So I would say maybe the most straightforward is on the, the wood. Mm. Um, in the U.S., we typically build buildings out of wood, and that takes a lot of land to grow. So we don't have to do that. Lots mm. of places don't build out of wood. But now there's a movement to build more buildings out of wood, even skyscrapers. Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> because it is true that the the trees when they're growing sequester carbon dioxide yeah. and then if you even when the building is demolished mm. if you put it in, in a landfill area. where it doesn't decompose mm. then then that does sequester carbon so if we are really pushing on on climate change it could be we move more towards wood mm. and and that would use a lot of land yeah interesting okay so this is like this is one where we really should be paying attention to land use from from growing plants potentially i guess have you ever looked at you know over the last 50, 70 years, or I guess actually over, over hundreds of years, we've seen increasing yields. So we get like more and more food for any given amount of land. Do you have a sense of in kind of the, the median case, whether food prices are likely to go up or down in coming decades? Because you've got this like, you've got increasing population, and you've got people eating more meat, uh, which requires more, more calorie input. On the other hand, you've got like better technology, like more irrigation, people like improving the technology on, on, on farms, pushing down the price. Do you have a, a forecast? 
Well, I would say first on the the wood side, when I was talking about how minerals haven't really increased much in inflation-adjusted terms, the big exception was actually timber. So it's surprising, right? This is renewable. You wouldn't expect the renewable resource (laughs) to get more expensive than than your copper, but that's how it worked out. And I think it's partly because, well, we we may be running into land constraints. But there are some straightforward things also to increase the the yield from from wood production. Mm. Right now, we typically don't apply fertilizers or any pesticides or anything like that. Mm. So we could increase the yield. So if the price of wood went up high enough, then a bunch of things to try to improve yields would, would then become economically uh, profit generating, basically. Right. Yeah. Interesting. We also leave, when we when we cut down a forest for timber, hmm. we typically leave a lot of material in the forest. So especially if, you, you know, if you're creating, well, in the U.S., we call it a two by four, two inches by four inches. Hmm. Well, the part of the tree that's not wide enough for that is just it's, left there. Right. But that's a lot of biomass. Right. You know, that could be turned into something useful, food or, or fiber or something like that. So I think I think we'll get more efficient there as well. Okay. Makes sense. Uh, yeah. Uh, how about food? Yeah. So I haven't put a lot of thought into the, the near-term forecasts. People have observed that in some decades, despite increasing consumption of food, we did not have expansion of planted area because the yield increased. Hmm. But then in the last couple of decades, especially with the growth of biofuels, the planted area has had to increase. Hmm. And so I'm not sure exactly what's going to happen. I do think that when you hear people say, well, we've reached the limit, That's definitely not the case Mm. because you just look at the variation in yield of the same crop across the world. Mm. If you just produce the yield of the Netherlands across the world, you could have two or three times global food production. Now, it's not that simple, of course, because there's a lot of know-how and inputs that go into that, but it's certainly technically feasible. And and the climate's even better in the tropics that we're talking Mm. about. So, So there's a lot of potential there. Yeah, I guess so they're paying a lot of attention to fertilizer, to like nutrients, to the soil quality, to you know irrigating just the right amount, to protecting the plants from pests and, and so on. And I guess using the best strains of, of right. all these different crops is, is a super big factor. So the idea as well, if I guess if the price of food reached a really high level, then it could, again, become economical to apply those kinds of really intensive things and to like train people for many years and how to do this extremely like intensive high-tech agriculture in many more places. And that would help to prevent you know, food prices from becoming even higher. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of potential even now at mm. current prices. You know, there was this green revolution in Asia mm. where we applied fertilizers, pesticides, improved crop varieties. Many people credit Norman Borlaug with a significant acceleration of that by developing these high yield varieties. Mm. They say he could be credited with saving a billion lives. It's hard to know the counterfactual there. I think that he probably did save a lot of lives, but he also saved a lot of biodiversity because otherwise we would have cut down the rainforest. Right. Um, But you look at Africa, he tried to do the same thing in Africa, but he was actually blocked by some environmentalists that didn't want the use of fertilizers and, um, Mm. and pesticides and things like that. But to me, it's not only a win for people, but like I say, it's a win for biodiversity. Yeah, because then people don't need to farm on as much land. And yeah. They can let some of it rewild, I guess, like we're seeing. I think there's like net rewilding in Europe and, and, and the US. And yeah. Surely like, yeah, very high crop yields is uh, surely a part of that. Okay, yeah, what other things do people worry about that maybe they shouldn't? Well, you hear people worrying about landfills, their media stories about particular waste issues, but it's a really tiny amount of land. Similarly, mines are a tiny amount of land. Yeah. 
I guess, yeah, landfills is a really fun one. I, I don't know how people could imagine that we could run out of land for landfill because there's multiple different reasons. One is like we gathered all of this material from the earth. It didn't come from space. And so we could just stick it back where we found it to begin with. I mean, I think in practice, if if you're competent, the landfill ends up in, in the fullness of time using zero land, basically, because you just dig a big pit, you uh, put all the stuff in it with like sufficient sealing in order to prevent anything toxic from leaching out. You have like various drainage systems and, and so on in order to, to catch anything that gets out there and you, and you monitor groundwater. And then you fill it up. I think you concrete it and then you put soil on top of it and then you can just farm on it basically as it as it was before. So a landfill requires land when it's being filled, but not once it's full, <laughs> if, if you're uh, doing state-of-the-art landfill anyway. Right. Okay, yeah, well, is there anything to say on mining and cities? I, I, sometimes people do say, I was like, yeah, we're full, like there's not room for people. Maybe this is the easiest one to to reject. Yeah, yeah mining is, is really small, but then there's the direct living space of mm. people that sometimes people are concerned about. But you look globally and cities are maybe a few percent of the, of the area. Mm. There's possibly a concern that if we go massively to self-driving cars or more extreme telecommuting, that we won't have as much incentive to agglomerate mm. together. Mm. And also if we have automatic lawn maintenance, then people might say, well, I want a four-hectare lawn. So then then that could be bigger. Um, so that's a potential yeah. scenario. Okay, yeah, I guess the, the lawnmowers must be stopped. It's, <laughs> I guess at that point, then, it's kind of a food issue again, or, or I guess a wilderness issue that you're getting rid of wilderness in order to have lawns, or you're displacing farm or like land that otherwise could have been used to keep the price of food and timber low, basically. Right, yeah. Though, though there is one possible way around it is mm. that you could capture your lawn clippings and then feed them to animals. Oh, you've always got a suggestion, Dave. Well, yeah, I guess one other thing is that you can kind of put these things together and mm-hmm. you could say, well, yeah, there's probably going to be some expansion of people's living area. Maybe there's some competition with land area, with energy, especially if we do significant biofuels. Mm-hmm. And then we have the background climate change, which can you know hurt agricultural yield. Mm-hmm. And so I do think it's it's fairly plausible that food prices will increase significantly. But then I think we'll we'll move towards resilient foods like yeah. like seaweed. Yeah, it is interesting. I feel like people can probably sense I'm skeptical about a lot of these environmental resource sustainability things. But I guess some of them could, you know, surprise us. We know we could end up with various bottlenecks where it is like it's a big drag to get enough of something or it's a big drag to substitute or cut back on our use of it in some way that, you know, it's hard to foresee now. Food does seem like, yeah, just show up again and again. In my conversation with Mark Linus, most of the scenarios where climate change went really badly, it kind of was mediated by food in some way because it was just so hard to, well, it was, it was hard to make a case that anything else could mediate an ongoing collapse other than, than famine, basically. So I guess if you're someone in the audience who is worried about climate change, worried about the environment and resource scarcity in future, I think focusing on improving our resilient access to food, improving our ability to substitute things in disasters, as well as just increasing the yields in food, seems like it's a very promising focus area within that worldview. Yeah, I guess I know there's another thing I would say about the uh, fiber is the the fiber for clothing. Mm. Again, you have this push for more natural alternatives like cotton. Mm. But I don't think that's a good idea for a number of reasons. I mean, one, there's a lot of land and, and water use for cotton production. But in the particular case of clothing, the synthetic fibers are more durable. Mm. So you can wear your clothing longer. And even if you don't wear your clothing until it wears out, typically when you donate it, that can go to someone in another country, and then they can wear it a long time. Yeah. The other thing is that synthetic fibers shed water more easily in a, in a washing machine spinning cycle. Mm. And so then you have less water on the clothing 
in the dryer, and that reduces energy use significantly. Interesting. Yeah, has much been done about the breathability of synthetic fibers? Because I think that was one reason why they went out of fashion is they just didn't feel so so comfortable to to wear. Uh, I think you can get very very breathable synthetic fibers. Okay, cool. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, most of my most of my clothes for good air are made of cotton, so maybe I should take another look at synthetic fibers. Yeah, it is funny that cotton feels like it should be like the more environmentally friendly thing, but I guess you should think of you know polyester clothes as like sequestering carbon, kind of. If you take fossil fuels out of the ground, turn it into your clothes, and then one day they'll go back to the land. <laughs> yeah, it's from a from just a direct use. Then at least it's better than burning the fossil fuel. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It is so funny that very often the thing that feels greener turns out to be worse for the environment. You get this with housing as well, that it seems like living in a cottage in the country would be the green way to live relative to being in a city. But of course, apartments in a city are far more energy efficient. Transport is much more efficient when you're living close together. Heating is much better. Uh, It's easier to deliver services to people. Like logistics is is more straightforward. So very often the thing that seems like that doesn't have kind of a green aesthetic turns out to be much, much better in terms of reduced resource use. Yeah. And and you've talked before about this naturalistic bias, I think Mm. it's called, that, that we tend to think the natural way of doing things is the better way of doing things. But yeah, we really need to run the run the numbers and do that analysis. Cool. I think guess this is a good moment to maybe bring in Sahil to talk about some of the some of the seaweed stuff and I guess also what we've learned from COVID-19 and the supply disruptions from that. Sound good? Sounds great. Okay, so we've just grabbed Sahil. Sahil Shah is a co-founder and director of Sustainable Seaweed, an agri-tech company scaling seaweed production for food security and blue carbon sinks. And he's also a specialist advisor to Allfed. Sahil got a first studying economics and management at the University of Cambridge. And among other things since then, he has advised the think tank Let's Fund, served as a strategy and management consultant with Accenture, co-founded an open source project called the Food Systems Handbook, and sits on the Chatham House Food and Land Use Roundtable. Thanks for joining us, Sahil. Thank you so much, Rob. I'll just put the same first question that we usually ask all guests uh, to you, Sahil. What are you working on at the moment and why do you think it's important? There are two things I'd like to highlight. I think first is the seaweed. Tim Flannery, climate scientist, said if we use 9% of the world's oceans to grow seaweed, we produce enough food to feed the world. We absorb total global carbon dioxide emissions and we produce enough biomass to meet total global energy demand. Um, On top of that, it's one of the most promising, resilient foods and catastrophes. And I think we are on the cusp of solving a number of engineering and biological breakthroughs to scale seaweed production orders of magnitude higher to what it currently is. Nice. Yeah, we'll talk about that in uh, just a second. Was there a second thing? Uh, yes. The second was the work with Orfed and disaster risk finance. Mm. Again, I think it's a point in timing with both climate change and off the back of the pandemic, where we're looking to build back better and we're seeing a lot more money going to resilient finance. I think by changing the narrative towards tail risk and by being able to better quantify some of the economic and financial impacts of these tail risks, as well as the ability to engineer new types of financial products, I think we have the ability to shift uh, large amounts of funding towards a variety of resilient investments across different tail risks. Nice. Okay. Yeah, let's do the first one first. How did you first get into seaweed? Really good question. So I read a book, as I mentioned, called The Atmosphere of Hope by the Australian climate scientist called Tim Flannery. I just seemed to be stymied as to why it was so neglected and no one was working on it. There happened to be a European research project that was building out a new set of technologies at the time, which were then looking to significantly reduce the cost of seaweed production through a high amount of mechanization. I reached out to them to basically then look to collaborate with them off the back of it and set up a company and started applying for permits to set up large offshore 
seaweed farms. Yeah. So we were just talking about some of the advantages of seaweed. It grows incredibly quickly. It doesn't require land. I guess it just seems like the main thing it needs is ropes and something to attach them to. Why don't we use seaweed more? I don't, like seaweed seems so lit. What's the what's what's the barrier? We use seaweed in some places more than we use it in others. So about well, between ninety eight and ninety nine percent of the world's seaweed is grown in Southeast and East Asia, hmm. and there people are more used to eating it. There's a wide number of industrial uses for seaweed as well. Hydrocollos are extracted from seaweed and are used in everything from toothpaste through to vegan substitutes as a hmm. thickening agent. The main reason we don't use it so far is because unit economics and market demand. Hmm. We're constantly finding new uses such as seaweed for flip-flops, seaweed clothes. Integrated biorefineries are becoming closer to being cost-effective and basically feasible. But one of the big reasons we don't grow more of it is there are regulatory issues here in the West, especially in Europe and in the US, which means that getting permits takes a number of years. And there are also issues around climate change where around the tropics, the waters are becoming too warm mm. for current species that are grown, leading to impacts on both yield and disease. So it's a different reason for different parts of the world. In the UK, for example, if you wanted to grow seaweed, you'd need to uh, get some, I suppose it's it's hard to just buy up a piece of the sea uh, like you can with the land. So you're going to need some kind of permit, like like I guess you would if you were setting up a food truck on the side of the street, right? You need to get permission to grow seaweed on what is otherwise public waters, I, I imagine. Yes, in short, that's what you need. However, the oceans are used by a much wider range of actors than we think they are. Mm. The seas are used for aggregates, which is then used for concrete, mm. sand. Um, you've got naval uses, fishing uses, recreational uses, and a whole set of others. And the coastline around the UK and most of the European countries, at least, is incredibly busy. And you also need to have the right type of sea bottom. You need to be at a reasonable water depth. You need sufficient nutrients. And once you start to layer all of these factors on top of each other, you end up with a slightly narrower array of areas which you can grow seaweed. Okay. And this is somewhere where I think changing policy to reduce the time and the cost to get these permits could be really transformative in scaling more seaweed. Yeah. Where in the world is it most promising to grow lots more seaweed? I guess, so you're saying it's kind of South Korea, Japan, China. That's that's where you might find the most seaweed farms at the moment? It's mainly China, followed by Indonesia, and then South Korea. Okay. In terms of where's most promising, uh, China already produce a huge amount of the world's seaweed, mm. but I think have already have targets to produce a significant amount more, hmm. both to meet some of their carbon emissions targets, but also to mop up a lot of the ocean waste and the chemical pollutants that go out to the sea. Huh. Indonesia is particularly promising just because they already have a large industry and yeah. they also have the ability, because the sheer number of islands, to scale that orders of magnitude further. Yeah. Outside of that, in terms of non-traditional regions, the Pacific and sort of the northern west coast of the US and the west coast of Canada, at least from a climatic standpoint, are particularly well suited, as well as southwest Africa, looking at Namibia and actually looking at South Africa, if you look at nutrient swells as well. Yeah. Okay, so, so that's kind of an, another limiting factor is you've got to have these nutrient upwellings, unless you're going to fertilize them, I guess, which is maybe a bit difficult if you're just in the open ocean. You do need to have the nutrient upwellings in some parts of the world. Uh, in other parts of the world where there's a fair amount of intensive agriculture, you already have quite a lot of fertilizer runoff, which gives you large amounts of nitrates and phosphates that you would need. Okay, yeah. And I guess that then it's an extra benefit that you're getting rid of those nutrients that might otherwise be polluting. They, they, they get sucked up by the seaweed. Yes. Yeah. If I were to stumble on a seaweed farm, like what would it look like? I guess it's a bunch of rope attached to a bunch of floating things. Is that the basic idea? So it depends how you stumble upon it. If you stumble upon it from above water, all you'll likely see is a bunch of floating buoys. 
Otherwise, you'll typically see ropes and some type of mooring system. It can be high-tech and low-tech. For example, in parts of Indonesia, I think they literally use plastic bottles filled with sand to actually weigh down your system. Yeah, interesting. So your plan is to get more use of seaweed now in the in the here and now, like actually people buying, people producing seaweed. And I guess that would have the side benefit of being like really useful in a catastrophe to have a larger seaweed industry to begin with, because they could mostly continue unaffected post-disaster, continue making food. Yes. And I think there's not just one type of seaweed. There are thousands or tens of thousands of different types of seaweeds. And you may end up in a case where you are producing seaweeds for bioplastics or for biorefineries um, or even for textiles. And in the event of catastrophe, you might repurpose that to produce a different type of seaweed, which could then be used as human food. And one of the more promising uses of seaweed is to use it as cattle feed. There's a particular species called Asparagopsis taxiformis, and certain trials have shown that having it at just 1% of a cow's diet can reduce their methane emissions between 98 and 99%. How does it do that? It effectively inhibits particular enzymes um, uh. within the gut, which means that the cows produce less methane. Uh, it's worth caveating that these trials have over, only been done over a number of months, hmm. but so the long-term effects of these are unknown, Yeah, okay. but look promising so far. So it's possible that the bacteria or something could adapt to the seaweed in the diet and then, then come back and continue producing methane. But maybe not. Maybe it'll, maybe it'll be a persistent solution. Yes, um, time will tell. Yeah. So seaweed sounds pretty great. What's the, what are the biggest cons? Are there any downsides of seaweed that people should be aware of? There can be. I guess there are more limitations than there are cons. So although it may be possible to feed people large amounts of seaweed, from a dietary standpoint, we do, you do tend to hit bottlenecks in terms of high levels of iodine. You can also have issues when you're growing seaweed. It can lead to shading of the benthic ecosystem as well. Um, and in terms of nutrients, if there are other organisms competing for nutrients, then uh, it affected. could be negatively affected. However, the negative impacts of seaweed cultivation would likely only be found uh, orders of magnitude um, currently up higher than we are. Yeah. How much coastline will we need to use, you were saying, in order to like feed most of the world with, with seaweed? It was 9% of the world's ocean, ocean in total. Okay. With new types of technology which increase yield, that's now probably closer to between 3 and 4%. Okay. I guess the oceans are pretty huge. So that would end up being like a few percent of, the, of all of the land on the earth, basically. Does it need to be close to the coast or can you potentially do this fairly far offshore in order to expand the area where you can grow it? You can also do this offshore. The benefits of being closer to the coast are, one is you typically have higher levels of nutrients, especially where you have fertilizer runoff. You typically tend to have shallower oceans as well. The deeper the ocean is, the more complex it is to moor the whole system and mm. often the more expensive it is. Yeah. And also from a marine standpoint, you need to go quite far out to monitor it to then harvest it and bring it back. Seaweed denatures pretty quickly and you tend to want to process it within sort of 24 to 36 hours of harvesting it. Yeah. So seaweed, if, if I pull it out, it's kind of a lot of carbohydrate, a bit like a leafy thing. Is that right? And could I just pull seaweed out of the sea and then wash it off and then eat it? Some species you definitely could. Other species you might need to cook. Some are very high in carbohydrates. Some are high in sugars. Mm. There are a couple of very promising species that are quite high in protein. Mm. There are two red species, which are, I think a startup called Trophic, who are funded by the Good Food Institute, use to extract proteins from, which are then used in vegan, either plant-based substitutes for meat or seafood. Yeah. Okay, so what approach is sustainable seaweed taking to getting more seaweed out there? So... 
We essentially see the problem as one of unit economics. So we're looking at both using a high amount of mechanization, both when it comes to seeding and harvesting, Mm. uh, developing new types of seeding techniques and purpose-built vessels, as well as trying different types of materials to grow the seaweed on, which can increase yields and improve composition, as well as different types of mooring systems, which would be different to ropes, again, which would have higher yields and higher amounts of mechanization. The reason why we'd be doing those is the main reason why it's not grown as much in the West as it is in China and Indonesia is to do with cost and price. Mm. Seaweed here is generally seen as a luxury good if you want to buy sea vegetables anywhere. And effectively having it something more industrial than artisan means that it would open up a wide variety of new uses that we would be able to then supply to and increase the market as a whole. So I guess... Seaweed growing so quickly and also not requiring land, although I suppose you're saying the sea is in heavy use as well, so maybe there is competition between other uses, it's not free territory, but the fact that it grows so quickly makes me wonder, like, why isn't it cheaper? Why isn't it competitive with, you know, wheat and rice and and so on? And I guess it's because at the moment it's just not as much effort has gone into figuring out, like, the absolute cheapest ways to grow tons of seafood as has gone into, like, figuring out the absolute cheapest way to grow rice and wheat and so on. And so if you could mechanize it and industrialize seaweed production to the same extent, then maybe it really could compete on price and it could become, like, a significant source of of human calories. Yes, it definitely could. I think another aspect that I would add to that is biological and that we don't understand as much about seaweed as we do about traditional crops. Mm. The genes haven't been sequenced in the same way. We're not able to manipulate the genome because seaweed can kind of break free and it can move about in the ocean. There's a very different risk profile of Mm. introducing new genetically modified strains. So those are one of the elements where it has been done in China. And actually Chinese seaweed farmers are able to engineer and grow crops that are substantively larger and substantively cheaper. Uh, But outside of China, there are regulatory barriers, understandably so, around gene editing modification, Hmm. which you don't have to the same extent on plant-based crops, which really do contribute to production and cost of production. Yeah, yeah. You live in the UK, right? Yes, yeah, I do. You're in London with me? Cool. Yeah, what sorts of regulations would you like to see changed in the in the UK beyond the ones you already alluded to? That's a really good question. I think there are quite a few. One is the the barrier of proof that there won't be a negative impact is particularly high. Mm. So it can take years and tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of pounds to actually get a seaweed farm in the water. And I guess that's it's a bit unfair in as much as like normal farms presumably don't have to reach quite the same level of proof that they won't harm anything at all. Yes. The second thing I would add is carbon credits, where some really interesting work has been done and is being done predominantly by a nonprofit called Oceans 2050. But mm. when seaweed grows, especially the large kelps, sort of up to 50% of the biomass can actually fragment down to the ocean floor when mm. it effectively becomes long-term sequestered. Mm. At the moment, this is very difficult to monitor and track and there are no carbon credits available. If that were to then change and policy were to change with it, it would suddenly make the unit economics much more attractive. So when this biomass off the seaweed stays in the ocean, why doesn't it eventually just break down like other matter and the carbon go back into the atmosphere? I guess it gets so low in the sea, uh, it like kind of basically drops down such that there's not very much oxygen and not many living things down there that would ultimately break it down. So it just kind of sits there? Yes, it drops down to the seabed, which I guess over the long term is then finally converted. Converted. So eventually it breaks down, but it's a very long time. It's a very long time. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Is there much more to say on on seaweed? I guess, are you looking to hire people for the for the seaweed project? We will be imminently, so watch this space. Okay, cool. Yeah, how, how large is the project or, and how new is it? It's fairly large. So we've 
in the process of getting our first site here in the UK, which at uh, full scale will be enough to produce between 150 and 250,000 tons a year of seaweed. Mm. We're hoping to be operational from early next year and yeah. have been going through the permitting process here now for four years and are in the process of setting up operations elsewhere in the world too. Yeah, fantastic. Do you need to have a particular or do you want to have a particular resilient food angle or is it is it enough to just be scaling seaweed production in general and then that has this significant side benefit that it's all, all of that infrastructure is sitting there, all of that potentially you no know, rope spinning capacity is all is all awaiting us post-nuclear winter. I think it's definitely something I have in mind, as well as rope. One of your other limiting factors can be spores and hatcheries. Mm. And actually scaling it in particular parts of the world does mean you can have strategic hatcheries that have stockpiles and gametophyte cultures uh, of particular types of plants, which could then be outplanted at times of need. So uh, part of it is very much scaling it now. But once we're able to scale it now, I think it would give us a more nuanced understanding of what the considerations will then be to scale further. I think other parts will be how we then are able to scale further offshore. Hmm. So once we're able to scale, say, near shore, and then you then want to scale in the deep ocean, you might need to start at floating structures that move within a certain area because you might you won't be able to moor a kilometer down to the seabed. Right. So I think as you go through this process and the market grows, you start to learn what the bottlenecks are at increasingly larger orders of magnitude of scale. Mm, yeah. Have you given much thought to mussels? It seems like they have kind of quite similar properties of being grown on ropes in the ocean. They absorb pollution. I guess they're like pretty nutritious, maybe underrated as a, as a food. Definitely. And you often have seaweed grown in conjunction with mussels and other shellfish. It's often known as polyculture or integrated multitrophic aquaculture. Mm. And you tend to have a symbiotic relationship where the waste produced by the shellfish uh, basically absorbed through into the seaweed and increases the rate at which it grows. Yeah. Okay. So it's possible that these things will end up integrated anyway. So not only would you be producing kind of a plant in the sea, maybe uh, you're also producing this kind of meat substitute, or I guess, well, it is meat because uh, mussels are animals. They're just hopefully not not conscious or like extremely low level of consciousness animals. So it's like another, it's a potential meat source in a disaster scenario. Yes. Although the work done on co-location is still fairly nascent. So there's a lot more work that needs to be done before that can be scaled. All right. Okay. Yeah. So I know that I guess on behalf of Allfed and maybe other folks, you've been paying attention to food security issues around COVID-19. And I know a lot of people, uh, including both of you, were kind of worried that a potential famine could result from people from like disruption to transportation of food and, and agriculture during the pandemic over the last year and a half. And I guess actually simultaneously, we had this bad luck of having this terrible locust plague in some various different places in, in Africa, right? But for, I haven't actually, I've heard almost nothing about that in the news for, for a very long time. So yeah, mind giving, giving me and the, and the audience a bit of an update on COVID-19 and food and locusts and so on? Sure, I'll start with locusts and they go broader out into COVID and food. So we have had the world's worst locust outbreak uh, in parts of the world for the last 75 years. Locusts swarm when in under particular conditions, typically triggered by off-season cyclones, when you have the right type of soil moisture, soil temperature, air moisture, air temperature, etc. And effectively, they have the just typical they're grasshoppers, but the sort of serotonin levels change when they reach a critical mass, and then they tend to swarm and eat large amounts of food. Hmm. It's worth noting that it's not just been across sub-Saharan Africa, but locust swarms can also reach across the Middle East and mm. even into parts of India and China. So they can threaten the food supply of north of 2 billion people in the world. Right. Hold on. So when weather conditions are right, then there's a the potential for locusts to breed an awful lot. And then there's some behavior change that happens when they realize that they're at a sufficient concentration of locusts. 
and maybe that's an adaptation to the fact that they might run out of food. So they're like, I got to grab food really, really quickly because I'm competing with so many other locusts. Is, is that maybe part of the story? Not quite. I think it's more to do with serotonin changes, which are triggered. Okay, and yeah. then it then forms them to sort of swarm together and bond. Interesting. What, what is, what's swarming as opposed to just normal grasshopper behavior? So normal grasshopper behavior, they tend to be more disparate, whereas mm. swarming you literally have sort of large volumes of swarms that you can see visibly ah, they, they, rather than grasshoppers dotted around. So they prefer to hang out together, maybe as a way of like, it reduces their risk of being attacked by predators because they're surrounded by other grasshoppers, maybe? Quite possibly. I'm yeah, not yeah. fully sure on that one. Um, maybe I'm thinking back to my biology classes where I learned that lots of animals form herds and like lots of birds form flocks because you really don't want to be like the single, like, if, if there's a lot of birds around, you don't want to be far away from the other animals because then you're easy to pick off by predators. So possibly they're doing something where they're like grouping together because that gives office, at least to an individual, it offers, it offers protection or like relative protection against predators. Okay. Yeah. So we've had a terrible locust swarm. Egg, this is in Ethiopia, Kenya. Uh, uh, where? Yes. Also spreading out to the Yemen, um, South Sudan, Sudan. I think it went at some point as far south as Uganda yeah. and threatened sort of further west, sort of potentially going as far as Mauritania. And there was some concern at some point in time. And they did go as far east as India and China at yeah. the worst point in the outbreak. Uh, swarm sizes can increase up to 20 times every three months wow. uh, okay. when they lay eggs and then sort of a new set of locusts then appear. Right. And what, what impact has this had? It's difficult to isolate the particular impact that this has had in conjunction with COVID and other natural hazards as well. Um, we've seen floods in Kenya as well over the past year and other I guess, different weather factors that have impacted yields. But we are, I think we have over 350,000 people now or close to 350,000 people in famine in Ethiopia, which is partially due to the conflict, but has been exacerbated by locusts. Yeah. And we have tens of millions of people in Ethiopia Kenya, Yemen, and elsewhere who are acute food insecure, partially as a result of the locust outbreak. What should be done about this? I suppose an obvious thing is transport food to places where you have locust plagues. Is there much that can be done about the locusts themselves? Yes. So you have control operations to treat locust outbreaks. So this involves spraying the locusts themselves, let's say when they're flying, more when they come down to rest at night, and also spraying the eggs that they release as well. These are generally done by planes. And unfortunately, due to COVID-19 and being able to get personnel and planes out, mm. there were a number of delays in actually being able to treat them. This was exacerbated by the fact that a large amount of this was in Yemen, where mm. humanitarian access was particularly challenging, really which yeah led to a big delay in resolving the current outbreak. So I might have intuitively thought that you know, the worst locust plague in 75 years would cause even more damage, that there'll be uh, like more visible famines, people just dying and like desperate calls for famine relief. Has that happened and I've kind of missed that? Or has maybe this shown that food supply is a little bit more resilient to, to locusts than, than we might have thought? It's difficult to know the number of deaths from starvation. I think the malnutrition impacts already have been severe. Yeah, It's also worth noting when we're looking at food crises, it's very difficult to look at these in isolation. Point of cause. Or... Yeah, it's worth noting that there was a degree of success from an appeal through the FAO hmm. uh, and food being provided through the World Food Programme and other humanitarian aid. So although the impacts of these and the crop losses were large, Luckily, at this point in time, there was still sufficient support from the humanitarian community yeah. um, that the effects weren't as catastrophic as they could have been. However, a worse outbreak that also threatened the West of Africa in a time where it would have been harder or less likely for food to have been exported could yeah. have led to significantly worse consequences, as well as if operations were less successful in places like the Punjab and India, which is one of the world's breadbaskets. Yeah. 
Yeah, I saw a paper a couple of months ago that was trying to estimate the effect of COVID on extreme poverty and malnutrition. I'll try to find a link and stick that up in the show notes. It was the results were like much worse than what I thought, given that I hadn't really heard that much about, you know, extreme poverty getting worse because of COVID-19 or all these locusts or, or famines or malnutrition. But it seemed like the picture was quite grim, that things had really gotten quite bad in 2020 compared to compared to before. Yeah. And I think it's important to look at both supply side factors and demand side factors. Mm. So when we had lockdowns across the world in 2020, you had a large number of people who were already poor, suddenly deprived of their livelihoods. Mm. And you have stockpiling behavior as well, combined with supply chain fragmentation that lead to food price spikes, especially locally. And in some parts of the world, such as Addis Ababa, actually having to enact price ceilings at markets. Mm. So food prices didn't get that high. So a large amount of the issue was also to do with purchasing power and supply chains, as well as production issues. And these aren't things that necessarily show up straight away, especially as grain stores could be used initially. But it's when you're looking at malnutrition, it's not just about getting enough calories. It's also about nutrients. Mm. And unfortunately, when there's supply chain issues, it's fresh produce that tends to rot first. Yeah. Okay. What about the COVID-19 picture more more broadly? Yeah. Again, I'd like to break that down to sort of two or three different factors. Yeah. I think we saw significant impacts on supply chains initially. And that wasn't just supply chains of grain, but also agrochemicals of seeds and getting that transported around the world. Mm. Or you also had issues with ports being closed, there not being enough port workers with ports being sick. And on top of that, we also had export restrictions placed by countries such as Russia. Luckily, we saw significantly more international collaboration than we did in the 2007 food price crisis, Mm. which meant that food prices didn't rise as much as they could have done. On top of that, you also had the localized impacts in terms of food prices and loss of livelihoods. Mm. Understanding the total impact of COVID on global food security is challenging. And I think is most likely will be reflected and seen over time as we're able to monitor the malnutrition impacts in different parts of the world. Yeah, I'm not sure how quickly kind of FAO statistics come out. But do we know just, you know, what was the total calories produced or what was the total amount of food produced, you know, kind of month by month during 2020 or maybe part of 2021? So we can just do a comparison and see, you know, was it up or down compared to 2019, say? We have quite a lot of that available through FAO stat on an annual basis Mm. as opposed to a monthly basis. However, the accuracy of these numbers, especially in a range of developing countries, can be much harder to track as to whether that's accurate or not. Yeah. Yeah, Do you know what, uh, I guess, setting aside the accuracy issues for a second, do you know know what what the numbers were for 2020? Were they reasonable or noticeably down? They weren't noticeably down. They were down in some parts of the world. However, it's worth noting that I think weather patterns in high yield producing parts of the world were able to make up for shortfalls in other Mm. parts of the world. And often famines aren't necessarily brought about by a food production shortfall, but issues around distribution and affordability as well. Yeah. Were there any cases where the pandemic directly just interfered with transportation of food, you know, port closures or, you know, trucks not available, trains not running. And so people were going hungry just because food couldn't get into somewhere where previously it was being imported straightforwardly? You had that at a more localised level. You had markets being closed for a prolonged period of time, which meant then where farmers didn't have adequate storage facilities. Mm. And since they weren't able to store their food, that then went to waste rather than being able to be transported to market and then being eaten. Yeah, okay. I suppose a big picture question that I often have or that I've had about COVID-19 is, you know, what have we learned about 
the level of cooperation that we might hope for in future disasters? What have we learned about the resilience of supply chains in general or resilience of supply of the things that people most need, like food? Do you think it's on balance? Like, have we exceeded or fallen below our hopes or expectations before the pandemic? I think we've seen international cooperation in some ways and we haven't in others. For example, we've seen international cooperation when it comes to not enacting food export bans, Mm. but we haven't when it comes to vaccine sharing. We've seen it in other aspects of food supply chains because it's so globally integrated. There tends to be a vested interest in keeping those running. And in certain countries, they can be large exports. Mm. Uh, It was worth noting that I think at some point, Kenyan flour exports, which are particularly important to the country, were down 80% month Mm. on month in the worst parts of the pandemic. In terms of resilience of supply chains, I think there's a reason why there's been a widespread call for having more resilient supply chains rather than everything being as efficient, as important and just in time. Mm. And I think we can see with recent policy announcements and especially looking at China's 2035 and 2050 strategies, I believe, to become more self-sufficient in food and their supply chains, as well as calls in the UK, US and in the EU and other countries to have more self-sufficient supply chains. Uh, Singapore is another interesting example where I think they have their 30 by 30 target, which is to grow 30% of their food by 2030. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it's it's kind of interesting that in, I remember in March and April, I was kind of stockpiling food because I was worried that, you know, even in the UK, a reasonably rich country, uh, like it might become difficult to get enough enough food or at least the kind of foods that you'd want to eat. Seems like that kind of didn't happen. That at least, was, interestingly, it's like it seems like it's more challenging now. There's more things out of stock now in 2021 now that things are kind of returning to normal and people are buying even more than before. But during 2020, at least in rich countries, it seemed like the supermarkets remained pretty well stocked. People weren't going hungry at that much more than than before. I guess I'm not quite sure what the story is is there, but maybe it's that you know, shipping for the essential stuff was was really prioritized and like the government knew that we couldn't exactly shut down ports to imports of food because that would just lead to absolute catastrophes. So, you know, even even during the worst parts of the pandemic, essential things like food production and food transport were kept online. And that basically was enough to at least prevent food issues in the in rich countries like the UK. Yes, at least where there were supply chain disruptions, these were relatively short lived. Mm. And because there were enough stockpiles, effectively, these could be taken into. So these effects weren't felt as much. In fact, I think it was the flour mill shutting down, which were the case for the shortages here in the UK, Mm. rather than there being a shortage of wheat Mm. themselves. Why did they shut down the mills? I think it was basically due to COVID-19 protocols and okay. ensuring that it was safe to operate. Yeah, interesting. I guess, I guess I'd hope if we were going super hungry, we'd probably just <laughs> risk it and keep the, keep the mills open. I'm sure, but, yes. Yeah. So I guess, yeah, one way of looking at this is trying to estimate how much would food prices spike in the case of various different disasters. I guess something that Dave talks about fairly often is this 10% loss of food or 10% reduction in agricultural output scenario. Do we have any idea like how much food prices would go crazy in that kind of situation? It's worth noting that food prices are complex and the drivers of food price globally are often different to those locally. Hmm. Back in sort of 2007 to 9, I think we saw a doubling in the wheat price and a tripling in the rice price hmm. with less than a 2% global shortfall. However, what happened with investor speculation, uh, biofuel mandates, And restrictions are what contributed to that increase in global prices. So it wouldn't be surprising if if we were to see something similar to have a fivefold or even tenfold increase in, in global food prices if we were to see similar circumstances now. 
However, those could be caveated. There are other factors as well that influence this, such as how long the shock is for, what the current levels of global grain storage are. So it's not a simple answer, but on the tail end of it, you could see a potentially five to 10 times increase in current global food prices. And again, that wouldn't necessarily be geographically proportionate. And a fear of mine is that what we would see in that result is effectively restriction of exports from net producers and we'll see rich countries buying up more of the food and actually those impacts being felt more by poorer countries who, let alone not being able to afford food just due to the nature of international markets, might not be able to place orders in time to be able to import food. And those food price increases, we'd be talking about the low cost food like grains. It's not like Mm -hmm. the actual retail price of the average developed country consumer is going to go five times as much. I see. So this is kind of the commodity price. Right. Um, Yeah. Yes. Although that does vary. I think the wheat aspect of a loaf of bread in the UK is roughly about 5% of the price. Mm. Whereas for a roshi in rural India is closer to 80% of the price. So actually these elasticities and price increases are felt much more where it's a greater determinant. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, that that is unfortunate that at least like far higher price increases in you know India potentially than it does in the in the UK. I suppose it's because in the UK you're mostly paying for the capital of the factory and the labor and uh, you know the, the retail and so on, which isn't affected necessarily by you know bad weather or on farms. Whereas uh, in other places those costs are much more stripped down, and so it's like the price of the raw commodity that's packing most of the punch. Yes, it's that and the supply chains as well. Where often these are bought and then, for example, the flour is then used in the household as opposed to having a longer supply chain here where you'll have sort of wholesaler and then retailer with yeah. a markup at each different level. Yeah. Can you explain this 2007? Like people people blame the price increase on speculation, but I'm like, that doesn't really make any sense as a like ultimate explanation because if if the true amount that people need to pay in order to like clear the market in like the fullness of time is not that it rise very dramatically, then why would a person speculate that it's going to go up far more? It seems like that's a pretty bad deal from like a financial trader's point of view, because they should expect the price to ultimately crash down at some point and reach its equilibrium. And they'll be left holding the bag, having bought this like high speculated high price increase for wheat or something. I don't know. It's, it's, it's never quite made sense to me. It seems like blaming the messenger to some degree. I think it depends upon whether you believe if markets are rational. If the effective market hypothesis holds, then you are definitely right. However, if you believe in sort of Keynes animal spirits and the price of something not being what it's actually worth, but what the average of people think that it's worth, then you start to see why bubbles occur. And people might speculate just because they'll make money in their interim rather than actually looking at the underlying value of the asset. Yeah, it seems like, the, well, if the animal spirits is the issue that people are like irrationally buying it up, you know, hoping to sell it off to someone else at a higher price in future, then the solution here is to form an investment fund that like short sells, short sells the price of food during these during these bubbles, where like, not only will you suppress the price by selling it effectively by borrowing it and selling it, but you'll also expect to make bank because if you're like correct at picking that this is just a speculative bubble on, a, on an important food stuff that I mean, it's a risky maneuver. But yeah, if, if it is possible to pick that it is animal spirits rather than fundamental price shifts, then that it is possible to make money while fixing the problem. It is possible. It is also influenced by policy as well. Hmm. So for example, if you look at policy on biofuel mandates on crops such as corn in places like the US, these changes in policy can have huge impacts and price shifts as well. So it could be possible, but it's also high risk. 
Yeah. Yeah. Those fundamental like supply and demand things make complete sense to me. Yeah. I don't know when people blame finance as being like fundamental to price formation. I'm always like a bit skeptical because it's, it seems like you can kind of always say that and it's hard to prove that is, that is not the case, but sorry, Dave, you're going to chime in. Yeah. I, I think the, it's helpful to know the context of 2008 because it was also an oil price spike. Mm. And a lot of people thought, well, oil price, we're running out. It's going to keep going up and up and up. And yeah. so I think there was speculation involved there. Mm. Whereas if you look at the long run cost of producing oil, mm. you know, people would say, well, it's going to go back to that eventually. Yeah, I guess, well, some people presumably did lose a ton of money there because the price absolutely crashed, if I recall, from something like 120 down to like 30. I guess that was partly driven by the financial crisis. I guess then it was later suppressed by shale oil and discoveries of new new supplies and so on. But yeah, I wouldn't want to have been one of the financiers who was speculating up the price of oil around that time. Seems like a really bad, bad move in retrospect. And then if you could, like you say, identify it, then yeah. that would be a good time to short it. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. Okay, uh, fantastic. Well, yeah, thanks for joining us, Asahi. This has been uh, super fascinating and uh, I think really helpful to the broader conversation that Dave and I are having. Thank you so much. We're almost done. The last time we closed the interview by talking about other ideas that you'd been considering other than resilient foods that you thought might have a really uh, huge benefit to cost ratio. Yeah, is there anything like that you've been mulling over in the in the shower recently? Well, yeah, I can talk about another uh, project I was involved in. This had to do with battery chargers. Hmm. And the battery chargers... There are tons of different devices, right? Charger for a cell phone, and it can go up charger for a golf cart and all, all sorts of... And there was this issue of, well, it's so many products, how do we regulate the efficiency? Well, of course, the first question is, you know, why are they not efficient on their own? And the thing is that most people don't really know how much energy they use. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there wasn't really a, you know, an information campaign that, that could do this. And so we were looking into an actual energy efficiency regulation. And there was no regulation at the federal level in the U.S. And we were working with the California government, which has been a a leader in in energy efficiency. And so we found that we could do what's called a horizontal regulation, where it's the battery chargers in many different products. Mm -hmm. Even though they don't use very much energy each, there are so many of them that it really adds up. And since there was no regulation and consumers weren't aware of it, these battery chargers were terribly inefficient. So my team, before I joined, developed a test procedure Mm -hmm. for the efficiency And they found some of these chargers, the energy you got out was 2% of the energy you put in. Wow. What are they charging? So this particular case was these batteries like nickel metal hydride and nickel cadmium batteries. They could handle what's called a trickle charge. Mm. They are just continuously, electricity is going into them even when they're full. And so manufacturers didn't even put in the simple control circuit to turn the charger off when the battery was full. They just kept charging it forever. Yeah. And so that's how you get these terrible efficiencies. Interesting. What about laptop chargers? Or are we thinking about just external battery chargers or also just batteries inside all the devices that we use, like phones and so on? Yeah. So we were looking at all of them. Fortunately, the the laptops, because they're lithium ion, Mm. they cannot handle being Mm. trickle charged forever. So those had to turn off. Yeah. But we were able to say we could save tons of energy by using the same technology circuit to turn off all these other battery chargers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So what came of it? Well, so we we developed the the test procedure. It's important to say, you know, that the test actually reflects the real world use mm. and then tested a bunch of batteries and then figured out, well, why are some more efficient? Obviously, you got to turn it off, but there were other things to improve efficiency and then said, well, proposed an efficiency standard. And what we ended up with would save about a power plant's worth of energy just in California. 
wow, how many batteries are people charging? How, how is so much energy being wasted by these things? This, well, I, I would have thought that like, yeah, almost all energy was going to heating and cooling rather than batteries. And definitely more energy is going to those. But it was really low hanging fruit, like mm. I said, because it wasn't regulated at all. And so, so yeah, it's like incredibly inefficient. Yeah. So it's things like, you know, not just the obvious laptop, but power tools, you know, electric lawnmowers, personal mobility devices, wheelchairs, mm. golf carts were in there. We, we didn't regulate uh, electric vehicles at that point. They were pretty nascent. Yeah. It's interesting. I guess with energy efficiency, it does seem like a case where just consumer pressure and markets don't work very well because it's completely invisible to the consumer or the amount of effort they'd have to go to to figure out how efficient their charger is. is It's at the level where basically no one does it unless they're a, an engineer who has a fascination with this topic. Um, right. So you can end up spending huge amounts in, on electricity and, and, and have no clue, which I guess creates this room for just direct regulations potentially being an effective way of, of dealing with the with the problem. Did it cost meaningfully more to make the chargers work properly and, and not waste energy? It did cost more, but it was highly cost effective. Okay, yeah. And interestingly, in this case, if you have a mass-produced product, mm. manufacturers don't want to have different standards to meet in mm. different states. So once the federal government makes a regulation, mm. the states are preempted from doing a regulation. When I was working on this project, the federal government was proposing a standard. Mm. And so it was a race, basically, uh, to get this California standard in place. And I remember the California Energy Commission saying, like, I don't, you know, so basically we were were funded by Pacific Gas and Electric, but we were a a consulting company. Hmm. And they said, you know, basically, I don't think we would have made it in time without all your help. And so we were actually able to get it in in place before the the federal standard. And the federal standard was no good. The federal standard was very weak. Hmm. Then... We we went to the federal government and said, okay, hold off, wait until the California standard takes effect, because mm. it doesn't take effect right away, yeah. and see if it works out, and then reevaluate your standard. And it was very interesting, because the energy efficiency advocates are usually like, do it as fast as possible, mm. and the industry is like, no, take a longer time. Yeah, but in this case, it was switched. <laughs> the industry was like, no, go do it right now with this weak standard. Yeah. Um, but anyway, we, we were successful in, in, in having them delay. And then it worked out and it was cost effective. And then the federal standard basically harmonized with California. And then we saved a bunch more power plants. So Amazing. When did this happen? So this took place, the California standard would have been finalized, I believe, in 2011 and took, uh, took effect in 2012 or so. Yeah. And then the federal standard, yeah, a few years after that. And, oh, yeah. So if you look at the total energy saved, we're talking on the order of $10 billion, even if we were just looking for the seven-year cycle, because the Department of Energy in the U.S. reviews their efficiency standards every seven years. So, you know, they could have caught it later. Yeah. Are there other products that people should be analyzing? I guess it seems in this case, like the absolute size of the benefit is quite large and the benefit to cost ratio is enormous. It's like extremely worth doing. Are there other places that people should maybe be looking for where energy efficiency standards are too lax or completely lacking? Yeah, I think that finding a product that has no regulation is going to be the lowest hanging fruit. Hmm. And there are still ones out there. For instance, so I, I've done a bunch of work on on laundry equipment. And there is a, a federal standard for clothes washers and clothes dryers and a partial one for some commercial clothes washers, hmm. but no commercial clothes dryers hmm. and no big commercial clothes washers. So that, I think, is really low hanging fruit. Interesting. Yeah. Maybe somebody in the audience can come and look at that. 
All right. Actually, final question now. You live in Alaska, which is an interesting place to live, not a place that a lot of people I know live. Yeah. What's it, what's it like up there? Well, it's certainly an adventure in Fairbanks. Uh, it often gets to negative 40 degrees Celsius, and that is the same as negative 40 degrees Fahrenheit. <laughs> and it's so cold that salt doesn't work on the roads. So our roads are covered with snow for about five months a year. Recess for my kids goes down to negative 19 degrees Fahrenheit or negative 28 degrees Celsius. Uh, they huddle together like penguins. Actually, they tell me they just run around a lot. Yeah. One other thing in, in particular about Fairbanks is it's 65 degrees latitude. So it's very close to the Arctic Circle. Mm. And so that means at the winter solstice, the sun only peaks above the horizon by about one degree mm. and only for four hours. Right. <laughs> so it's like a perpetual sunset kind of. Right. Yeah. Another thing is that the 75% of the communities in Alaska actually have no road access. Mm. Now, that's not 75% of the population, but you have all these remote communities. They are typically on the coast, so they are serviced by barges, mm. though there are some communities that are just, just only serviced by airplane. Mm. And then interestingly, Juneau, the energy efficiency story, is the capital of the state of Alaska. It also has no road access. Mm. So they say there are only three ways of getting to Juneau. And that is by boat, by airplane, or birth canal. Yeah. <laughs> uh, another interesting thing with Alaska is that COVID was delayed. Mm. And yet we locked down at about the same time as other places in the U.S. And so that meant that it was basically suppressed in the summer of 2020. Mm. We also had the fastest rollout of the vaccine of any state, which was really surprising to me with these remote communities. Mm. And one of the, the nice stories was there was a batch of 10 COVID vaccines that had to be used at the same time. Mm. But the village was so small that you only had five people that actually wanted to be vaccinated. Mm. But at that point, vaccines were, were really scarce. Mm. So they decided to fly the people from the remote community to a hub town so that they could utilize the vaccines well. Without wasting the other five, I guess. Yeah. Right. But then unfortunately, with all this delay and and our vaccination rate is, is not very good now, we've actually experienced the worst part of COVID mm. in October 2021. It feels a bit ridiculous. And yeah, it's unfortunate. Yeah. Um, what is there to do for, for fun up in Alaska? I suppose I'm not very outdoorsy, so it's, I, I'm, I'm guessing that the things won't, <laughs> won't, won't appeal to me that much, but maybe to other listeners. Well, I, I'm, I'm big on hiking and uh, have been for a while, and I have a spreadsheet of all my hikes that chronicles not just the horizontal distance, but also the vertical distance. <laughs> and uh, especially when I was in Colorado, my goal was to do the vertical gain and loss of the equivalent of going from sea level to the top of Mount Everest and back each oh. year. And I made it most of the years. Wow, that's so cool. Uh, nice. How difficult is that? How many how many hours are we talking? I mean, it was it was really only a few hours a week. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I guess the few hours a week adds up over time. What's that like 150 hours to walk to the top of, of Mount Everest? I guess I guess that kind of makes sense. I suppose it depends how steep it is. I guess if it's a sheer cliff or yeah, <laughs> no. Good. Could take longer. Cool. Well, yeah. Thanks. Thanks for everything you're doing with uh, with Allfed. It sounds like you've been super busy the last last couple of years, and I don't know. It seems like it's bearing a bearing a lot of fruit. Maybe we can check in in a couple of years' time, and hopefully you'll be able to talk about one of these things being actually scaled up to a factory and seeing how much food you can make, and maybe, maybe you'll have had the chance to eat some of it. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for having me again. My guest today has been Dave Denkenberger. Thanks so much for coming back on the Eighty Thousand Hours Podcast, Dave. Thanks, Rob. Just a reminder that, as I mentioned at the start, Dave and Allfed are fundraising at the moment in order to be able to look into more of the kinds of stuff that we were just talking about. If you'd like to help them out, uh, then head to allfed.info slash donate or get in touch with David himself at david at allfed.info. 
They take crypto, have tax deductibility in a number of different countries, and potentially you can also get your donation matched on November 30th at eagivingtuesday.org. AllFed is also hiring for four roles as I record this. Uh, There's a project manager, project coordinator, senior PA, and CRM administrator. Naturally, uh, you can find out more about all of those four different positions at allfed.info. If you'd like to hear more from Dave, you can naturally head back to our first interview in episode 50, Dr. David Denkenberger on how to feed all 8 billion people through an asteroid or nuclear winter. We cover the obvious in that conversation, but also some critiques of all-fed strategy, whether we should leave guides for producing resilient foods in cities scattered all over the world, and a bunch of other engineering proposals that Dave has for improving the world, including how to prevent a supervolcano explosion. All right, the 80,000 Hours podcast is produced and edited by Kieran Harris. Audio mastering is by Ben Cordell. Full transcripts and an extensive collection of links to learn more are always available on our site and put together by Katie Moore. Thanks for joining. Talk to you again soon.